like you guys that I can just sit around. I can just sit around recording videos. Without getting <laughs> shit done. <laughs> he who does not what does not eat. Fill in the blank. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. His day consists of sleep. <laughs> jujitsu and demolition, apparently. Hey, stop. I don't do jujitsu. That's a false narrative. Yeah, don't My kids that. do. But you're the master, right? You, they're your offspring. Somewhere in your heart, you have I did produced this. Quick side story. When my son was first getting into jujitsu, I was going to start doing it with him. I don't have time. And we were going to go to one practice together, but he was sick. And, um, and uh, I was, so, but I went on this long bike ride around the cities because it was spring. And I do that every year because Minneapolis has, it's like the best biking city in the U.S. And, but I tend to ride like I do everything, which is hard. And I wrecked my bike the hardest I've ever wrecked it. <laughs> I just went over the handlebars hard. I don't know what happened. It like turned into a bucking Bronco. I think I was like hesitant at a stoplight and then just hit the pedal really hard. And it just like it went crazy. And I went over the handlebars and just jacked myself up pretty well. I, I, then, wrecked, I wrecked my bike like that once. I ended up shattering my wrist. It shattered it so bad that they didn't think they could repair it. There's a metal plate in there now. Oh, dang. But Because um, it was yeah, downhill well, as well. Because I was going at a, on a downhill. This wasn't downhill. <laughs> uh, this was just a straight street. I don't know what the hell happened. It was crazy. I wish I had on video. And um, I wish but you anyhow, had on video but, too. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the story. So then later that day, my son is sick and doesn't want to go to the jujitsu thing. So then I go to my first ever jujitsu thing just by myself. And I'm just like bleeding through like the gi and, uh, and I just taken this horrible wreck, but this is, this gets into what kind of my personality. And then some guy, some purple belt, cause there's a, there's like this hierarchy and decorum where you can only roll or people who are higher ranked than you can only ask you to roll. Like it'd be inappropriate for me to ask him. Anyhow, he was doing it with me and he was doing this move where he was basically like trying to get out of like full guard which is where their legs are around you and get to the side to get like side control and you like lean your shoulder into their chest like your full weight and try to control the leg and step over and he was on top of me leaning into my chest and we both just heard this very audible pop like it was loud and I didn't like it didn't hurt at all but like he's like what was that I was like I don't know and then the short story is like I kept rolling and I think I broke a rib. I think I'd like fractured the rib on the bike rack. And then I think I, fra- I like full on broke it doing jujitsu. And then I was just like sucked. I was just in intense pain for like months. Sweet. So that's my story about. I don't know. Why did I tell that story? I don't know. I, I don't know either. I, I liked it though. I like this format too. If you're just walking around. Yeah. getting stuff done Thanks. yeah well see i'm not going to be able to you guys are going to say stuff that fires me up when you're gonna, and i'm gonna have to mute myself so i'm gonna make noise and i'm gonna have to like come unmute myself with dirty hands i might have to just leave go ahead okay all right so jason do you draw maps 
you're an artist would you draw a map i i would but i haven't but I'd... would you draw a map of the world that has that's how to put it it's east on top and then it starts at iraq roughly which is like a speculative location of uh, the garden of eden so that we would have an east on top map that has that that starts with um uh, with eden basically and then you can kind of draw a sunrise on top of that and then just like have, <laughs> I have could try. the world kind of flow out of that i could i could maybe try i don't know it'd probably be disappointing i can tell you that every time i've had to do art for someone else uh they're usually very disappointed in it i'm not very good at seeing your art i see i have the official um uh, almond tree art book oh yeah official <laughs> you know my hut can do it oh yeah well i don't know if she draws maps that's the thing mm -hmm. but i'm talking about a map like the way tolkien drew maps like weird maps which I'll maybe might have would do like kind um, of like ancient style maps with the little monsters on it and stuff yeah yeah and it has it's a, like a, a lot of europeans had like paradise in their maps too i don't know if europeans tended to to have east on top they tended to have north on top which is why all the maps are like that now because at least during the age of navigation they were navigating by like the north star um and you know maybe compasses as well i'm not sure but um huh. so they tended to orient toward north but in the ancient mind you orient toward the east that's why most ancient maps i think had east on top some had south on top because as it was explained in the article that i read darkness comes from the north the path of the sun um how to put it even in the northern hemisphere it's only like i get i think you would only say darkness comes from the north in the northern hemisphere but um in the in the summer it's like if you watch where the sun rises it's gonna kind of like move to the right or to the south of where it rose when it reaches its zenith and then when it sets it'll set back in the northern sky and then this and in the winter it'll only be in the southern sky and it, it will be farther south at its zenith so the sun has a way of being in the south um darkness has a way of being in the north when you face the east the south is to your right and it has associations of righteousness but the north spiritually has associations of darkness and danger and it's out of left field it's the left it's this it's the sinistral that's interesting so so you know even the 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 jews even today they for them paradise has gone aided jesus said you know this day you'll be with me in paradise paradise is the this, oh luke's luke's getting getting mad at something i said you have to lay the smack down um uh no the um paradise is the beginning and it's the end right it's what we're orienting toward it's it's where we're orienting toward um the the sort of paradisal beginning um and i think it would be interesting if we could uh have a map with paradise on top uh or or eden and then the sun rising above it in a way because because the west seen from this light is the bottom it's nethermost it's it's the place of darkness it's where the light is extinguished and like you said the the north it's the place of cold which is also meaning a place of death because life or you know life and heat are associated and yahweh is god of the living 
the firstborn belonged to me and everything that you, know, you don't eat the blood because the you don't drink the blood because the blood has the life in it the life is mine um and um so that's why a lot of old maps were actually drawn with south on top i read because the south is a warmer land for the muslims it was actually because many of them lived north of mecca but they wanted to be oriented so that they faced up to to the, the holy land of mecca so they would draw the the maps with south on top but what i'm proposing is a map with east on top east on top could you, you just get an, another map and then just turn it just rotate it so east is on top yeah but i also want iraq to be on top and in the middle okay huh. it doesn't um, have to be cartographically accurate yeah, yeah, of course not. I mean, it would just be kind of like just for imagery or something. Um, yeah, to, I need to try to picture it in my head. Um, I mean, it would probably look really stupid. I can, I can guarantee that or cheesy or something, but it might, it might be fun. Um, it's not going to look stupid or cheesy. It's going to look like a dope Tolkien map. All right. One of those yeah. weird and then the north will have like the White Walkers and stuff like that, you know. I'll just I'll just steal from everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that goes without saying. <laughs> yeah. So what are your thoughts on this, Mitch? On these ideas, dissociations? It would be a very cool map to see. <laughs> well, I mean, I I like this idea. I need to um get it better in my mind, I think, of the the way these things work. Like I said, um with uh the associations of north and death and cold and um south being the heat and even though south is like the heat i liked when you said um what was it was kind of like associated with you could have one with with righteousness and the other with like almost like order and chaos too and so if you exactly. go too too far towards the south you're going to burn up um and that's kind of the idea right there's like a desert and it's like yeah, burning right. burning heat um no one can see my face in blue yeah 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 that's, well, that's the, really the good. reason i wanted to talk to mitch today was i thought we might review andrew Parnich's biblical presentation for universalism because there's some interesting things in there oh yeah did you did you sort of make a, an outline because my memory would fail on a lot of it or did you want to listen to it or i thought we would just kind of play through it and just kind of react is it on YouTube? Do you have the link? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Drop it. Drop, it. drop the link in the chat, and I'll click it. Or, or you can share screen. I did the share screen thing. If you, it's up to you. Or I can do it. Yeah. No. No. You. You share the screen. All right. You. You have experience with these things. It's very limited, but I'm getting there. I'm learning. Where is this chat thing? Oh, there's a chat. Um, what's it called? I can maybe just look it up. If you I want. got it. Okay. I got the link. Now, is there a chat in here? Yeah, there is. Ooh. Drop it in the chat. Cool. All right. Um, let me pause that. Oh, it's only three minutes. Wait. Hold on one second. Hopefully, you can't hear that. You couldn't hear that, could you? Um, it ain't no three minutes, son. No, I didn't hear anything. 
An hour see. at least. An hour at least. Let me let me check. Uh, yeah, it is okay. Yeah, if it, it was the it was the ad at first was uh coming up. Let me uh, <laughs> where's the share screen thing again? There it is. Just had it. There we go. Share. Now I gotta click this. Um, share computer sound. Here we go. Welcome to Capturing Christianity. Oh, is there a part you want me to go to or just let it play? I think you can skip the first five minutes, probably, or three, where he intros, introduces him. He's, there's a certain point where he begins his presentation. I think you're right, because when he begins his presentation, he has like a slideshow. Yeah, there might and be like an is, ad right there. He's doing ads. Yeah. Okay. Um, so right okay. Yeah, right, here. right there. All right. And that we start Maybe even well slow it down because this guy talks so fast. I don't know. So I could slow yeah, it down. Yeah, he does talk fast. Playback speed. Just what? seven five. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And as you all know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I believe that the doctrine of creation has much to do with the doctrine of eschatology. How we view he the beginning plastic. ought to influence he sounds what he sounds plastered he's wasted <laughs> he does you want me to speed it back Take up it back up to one x <laughs> okay i'm used to like times times 1.75 or two all the time so well he's naturally at that so yeah how we view the end to put it succinctly our hopes for the end must be shaped by our understanding of the beginning our view of the alpha will ultimately determine our view of the omega at the outset, one must ask himself, what could possibly have hindered God from creating the world however he saw fit? And additionally, someone must also ask the question, what could possibly hinder God from ending the story as he sees fit? How one views, um, let's see, eschatology then is not the things of the end, but the lastness of all things. One thus makes pronouncements, not to the extent that one has foresight, but rather that one has insight. Insight that comes from propositional statements, which God makes concerning himself. For example, when Christ is confronted by the Sadducees over the issue of resurrection, Christ substantiates his futuristic assertions by appealing to the present nature and character of God, who is, quote, not God of the dead, but of the living. Christ thereby demonstrates that statements of Christian eschatology are inferences from theology proper, the doctrine of God, and thus be, must be measured accordingly. As Aristotle taught, what is last in execution is always the first in resolve. If this is true, then statements of eschatology are also statements about God. J.A.T. Robinson thus defines eschatology as, quote, the formulation of statements about the final sovereignty of God Right. Did you want? Okay. Do we want to comment on this? Do we need to like um, explain this a little bit? Like, um, his first point was that Jesus says he is not God of the dead, but of the living, and so he's arguing that from from Jesus' example here, it's appropriate to do eschatology um, by referring to the the nature and or character of God. And then his remark about first and last things was just that, I guess it, what's last in execution is first in resolve, meaning what you purpose, the final result of what you purpose to do, or, uh, you know, the very last stage of the process is, is in effect, you know, it's 
it's setting the template for everything that you do. It's 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 your it's your first intention. The end result is your is your first and governing creative intention. You spoke the end from the beginning type thing. Mitch, what were you gonna say? No, say it, say it. You had something. It was right there. I saw it. All right. No, I mean a Calvinist can agree with all this, I think. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think they would. I mean, I think they would hold I, to I the think, same no, idea. I think yeah. Jonathan Edwards would agree with all this, you know, in his, yeah. in his beautiful um uh the end for which God created the world. Uh, a, a treatise concerning the end for which God created the world. It's it's some um, uh, it's 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 just a different conception of you know, for, for Edwards, God shows forth his glory in the the splendor and the contrast of you know his his wrath and his mercy. It's it's a little bit dualistic, but I'm not I'm not saying at all. I'm not saying any version of Calvinism has to be also made philosophically. It does inescapably end up becoming that way. I would contend, but but I'm just saying to be neutral and fair to Calvinists doesn't necessarily have to be like dualism or zoroastrianism for edwards it is a little bit well you know edwards they, they said he was a pantheist or panentheist as well just because of the way that you know every, every because of the way that on his view everything that happens is expressing the nature and character of god and there isn't anything other than in creation you know for that creation is the only canvas for that nature and character to be expressed really and um could you but you could maybe argue against that that uh i mean man's man goes against god's will couldn't you whereas where you don't well the thing is on some level if you believe in meticulous providence there's only one will that's operating in the cosmos and so everything that happens is a reflection of god's will and so in that way it really images his will i.e his nature what his will will do if it has unfettered complete absolute sovereign power and the ability to work its will in everything which it does um you know on that on that theological view um so that's i think why he kind of got uh sort of accused of pantheism or panentheism but anyway i'm just saying like edwards and this guy would probably be in, a, in agreement so far so there's nothing here that's intrinsically antagonistic toward calvinism you want to hit play again as it must be understood, if the data of Christian experience are to be scientifically explained, it is the explication of what must be true of the end, both of history and of the individual, if God is to be the God of the biblical faith. All eschatological statements can finally be reduced to, and the validity tested by sentences beginning, in the end, God. If this is true, then false notions of the lastness of all things stem from a flawed perception of theology proper. Every truth about eschatology is ipso facto a truth about God. Every statement about God is ipso facto an assertion about the end, a truth about eschatology. While the Greeks believe that what is, that which is ultimately real, is timeless, and that which is less than ultimately real is subject to time, for the Hebrews, ultimate reality was not that of timeless essence, but of historical event. Thus, that which is most true of God must be revealed by means of historical verification and not mere mystical reflection. What God is, is what in history he asserts himself to be. Consequently, 
the ultimate truth about God is necessarily the final event in history. And that's from Hergen Moltmann. If this, all this is true, then one must consider what God has already revealed in history in order to conclude what must be revealed in the future. If the New Testament is clear in any regards to this issue, God has revealed in one word that which is the most fundamental truth concerning himself, as well as that which also serves as the telos of creation. That one word is Jesus. It, just a Sunday school answer, folks. If you don't know what the answer is, just say Jesus. Amen. Uh, thus, as the first and final revelation about God, Christ is also the first and final word about history. God's purpose has been set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The lastness of all things is manifested for, quote, the God of the incarnation is the God of history. He can speak finally about himself only as he speaks finally about the world process. With the completion of Christ's work, to tell us die, it is finished. The telos of history is finally revealed. James, the brother of Christ, wrote to his readers, quote, Ye have seen the end of the Lord, how that the Lord is full of pity and merciful. This was the apostolic message received from Christ and entrusted to his followers. Christians have seen the end of the Lord. To them, eschatology is neither the peering of curiosity nor the prizing of argument into a future state. The telos has been declared in the accompli of Jesus Christ. In him it is finished. Into him all things have been gathered up. Whenever the phoenix may come, there can be no other end to the universe. God will be all in all. Christians of all traditions agree that all humans are created in the image of God. But while they were created good, they were not created as finished and completed creatures. Robin Parry says, quote, he created them with a destiny to grow towards. This telos of human creatures is, in community, to be filled with God and to image God in the world. In one sense, for us, being human is a yet-to-be-completed journey. Jesus is the only person ever of whom it can be said that he is fully human. Humanity has reached its goal in him. Jesus brings the human story to his destination, which is theosis, Christification, or union with God. On the other hand, the traditional or annihilationist view implies either A, a problematic doctrine of creation, this being the superlapsarian or other predestinary views that teach God creates in order to damn, as if God is a Calvinist, or B, the eternal thwarting of God's purposes in creation, which is that some may, ob now, some may object to this latter statement with B, that God's, uh, his purposes are eternally thwarted in creation, on the basis that God has won the victory, so long as he has achieved his purpose of giving all people the opportunity to accept salvation freely and saving those who accept it. In other words, God is victorious so long as he makes people savable. Now, I often hear this sort of rhetoric by people like Leighton Flowers, yet if this were so, then it would be possible to claim that God has won the victory and achieved his purposes in salvation even in the event that all people reject salvation and are condemned to hell. Yet we know with confidence that what God has spoken will come to pass. He has said, quote, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose for it to do. Um, let's see. 
So the next stage is that of the universal fatherhood of God. Today, I would like to show you 70 ingenious add, projects I've built around guys. my house that you can easily <laughs> replicate on your own property. In fact, so, what I want to do in the next few minutes is hand you the exact... of Almond Tree is, <laughs> is suffering because Jason is too cheap to, to shell out for YouTube Premium. Is, is this the Almond Tree that the subscribers pay for on Patreon? <laughs> no, no, on Patreon, I'll, I'll cut out the ads, but... But you guys aren't subscribers, so I can't do that for you. You guys are too cheap. <laughs> do you want to comment on anything that has been said so far? Or just let it keep going? Why does the, our view of the Alpha have to determine uh, the, the view of the Omega? Why? Yeah. Maybe um, because God is outside our time. For him, they're just like one full. I don't know. Yeah, but <clears throat> since we have to determine a view that's time-bound. Then um, it might not look the same to us, or we might not be able to, to know the extent of the end. His, his, ways, his ways are not our ways, you can say. And there's like an otherness and a holiness about it. Like we, God speaks the end from the beginning, but we can't, like, we can't, I don't know. So it's kind of the argument here. If your purpose is creation, then your, I mean, if your beginning is creation, then your end would be creation. Is that kind of the idea? Or I'm probably oversimplifying it. I'm thinking in terms of like, if you have a child, like what would be your, if your very intention is to create a life uh, then he would, he's kind of arguing your end goal would not be to exterminate that life, or that wouldn't be. I don't. Yeah, know. he's he's arguing here that that he created humanity for for salvation, or at least for um uh, you know for union with him that he won't be denied his purpose. That's all he's saying. Yeah, and he just has to push back against the position that would say a priori that not all were created for union with God, which is, which is the Calvinist position. Yeah. And, well, and also against the position that, that says that it's sufficient for God's creative purpose. Um, if at one time or another, it was possible for them to be united with him, even in the end, you know, they are not. Yeah. That's not going to be Mitch's position. Well, we don't know that for sure, but, uh, I don't want to project that um at all well, but, i'm uh, sorry Mitch. Uh, well are you, are you calvinist or calvin ish like michael sartori oh i'm not sure okay and i i would like i mean i would i agree with what this guy is saying and the argument he's making so much so like i've come to agree with it more and more that it's it's almost hard for me like i want to push against him like i want to argue against it to see if there's holes or to throw rocks at it to see if there's cracks in the wall but of the argument he's building up but um, I think I, I agree with the idea so much that it's hard for me to actually do that. Um, well, here's, here's the thing. It's like, he's going to say God is God's good. So whatever God does is consistent with his goodness. And some might say that God is not a finite thing like goodness. What the, the infinite splendor of God is something beyond anything that we can finitely comprehend. So it may not look like what we imagine the good should look like. 
So it's to sever that connection or the continuity between our moral intuitions and, and the ultimate nature of God to say that um, they are, well, they're either absolutely discontinuous or at least partly. But I, I, I think it ultimately ends up being like total uh, uh, like perpen perpendicularity or uh, orthogonality. Um, it always ends up being totally discontinuous if you admit that God could do one thing that was shocking or, you know, like how to put it. Imagine you knew someone really good and then one day he does something like he just horribly strangles a baby or something. And then the rest of his life was really good. It's like, would you say that he was 99% good or would you say that he was actually like 0% good kind of thing? So, you know, that would be the philosophical debate. Can we say that, like, are, are we... Are we totally severing or are we totally severing our, our moral continuity with God or the continuity between our moral intuitions and God's nature when we imagine that He creates some for damnation? Or on, or are we only partially severing it? You know, that 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 debate would sort of I think map onto that question that I raised about like the good guy that you know that uh he did everything good except one time he horribly murdered this baby for no discernible reason. And then is he 99% good or 0% good? You know, people would debate over that. Is it possible for God to do something and it'd be good for him, but if we were to do it, it would be bad? Yeah, that's a great question. No, I, I tend to think no, because I'm big on the continuity, but, you know, obviously Calvinists would think um, sometimes yes. What if uh, it would be good for God but to only ask sometimes. others to worship him it would be bad for us to ask others to worship us something like that that's true that's true that's interesting when you apply that to jesus right then i mean because isn't that kind of the reason god came in form of man for does he i mean does he even uh well he does say love god with all your heart and soul yeah so i mean i don't know and love your neighbor as yourself, which is like it, uh, which is really fascinating. Because I was trying to think if he says somewhere where he says, worship me. I mean, he says, you shall have no other gods before me, which I think is at least probably the same thing. Um, and he says the, fir the first commandment is to love God with all your heart. So I don't know what I'm getting at. I guess I'm just, yeah, I'm trying to explore your question a little more. Because he comes in the likeness of man. So I wanted to say that it would like he wouldn't everything he would ask us to do would be applicable to himself because he comes in the same form as us in the story of christ but then, oh i see well that's the weird okay so in some way even god worships god yeah yeah or something like that yeah which is really strange because i was wondering if jesus came and he doesn't he doesn't seem to say he doesn't really even seem to make a claim that he's that he's god per se it's like others see that and he just doesn't deny it um uh but yeah i'm not sure what i'm getting at here i mean mitch raises a good question i mean um uh what's another example I'm not sure but it does go back to what we were talking about the other day which is uh, i do agree with you that we have an understanding of what is good we've been gifted with that but i don't think we have a complete understanding of what is good Indeed. or if we do we often are, we often, it's clouded uh, such that we can't totally 
me measure God's behavior against our understanding of goodness all the time. We just are left to conclude that when he does something, it's, it's actually good. Yeah, this Indeed. is like, have you guys seen that? What's that movie, uh, Batman vs. Superman? You seen that? Don't they wrestle with this question in that? Like, God's either all-powerful or he's all-good, but he can't be both. Because it's like, then he would, why didn't he stop the evil in the world and stuff like that? It seems like they wrestle with these same questions, so it kind of falls into free will a little bit as, as well. Um, and I don't know if this, let me know if this is applicable or not. Because you talked, you mentioned Kyle, the the man that would kill the baby, and you wonder if that's good. And you could maybe, I mean, the argument I guess would be, well, you don't see the whole story, so that baby could have been an evil baby or grown up to be an evil baby. But then you get in a minority report type crap, and then and you get you get into ends justifying the means type uh -huh. ethics, and then we wonder whether that is what Jesus actually preached, or whether the the ethics of Jesus are like be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh -huh. So in other words, emphasizing absolute uprightness at all times and emphasizing the continuity between your morality and God's. Okay. Yeah. There's a, the, the other thing I was going to mention, Jacob brought this up. It's kind of stuck out to me a little bit, but she said that uh, the reason God let Abel be murdered by his brother was so that Cain could repent. That was the reason. Because if he would have killed yeah, Cain. that sounds a little bit Kabbalistic to me. Yeah. Which is like know. Jacob is Jewish, so that's that's okay. <laughs> what does that mean, Kabbalistic? I don't even know. Kabbalistic is it's it's you know the Kabbalah or Kabbalah. Yeah. yeah. Some uh, the, the mysticism of, of Judaism. And okay. for them it's sort of like evil is good because it provides a contrast, or maybe they wouldn't say evil is good, but you know the God, God is so like beyond our understanding that, um, you know, He's both light and darkness, and and um, you know, just like it is in the Old Testament, it's like you know, I'm the Lord, I do good, I do evil. Does destruction come to a city, uh, without you know my my purposing it or something mm -hmm. like that? I'm just very loosely paraphrasing. No, uh, yeah, I know what you're so, saying. So you know, because because that's why Yosef said we don't say God is love because that's making God that's reducing God to something that is knowable and known and finite so you know we say that what god is is beyond our categories and it's non-dual and it encompasses you know the darkness and the light and what i think is that wait you know love love it love is non-dual and it is infinite and it's not something that you fully understand although you know it in part i would i would chime in with mitch there you know it in part and i wouldn't say that god is absolutely unknowable that's what i said it either in the conversation with Jacob or in another conversation the infinite is unreferenceable but not absolutely so um yeah, there's a first order second order dialectal thing hap dialectical thing happening there which I talked about in other episodes I, I I don't think um the discontinuity is utter or absolute between us and God in terms of the ability to reference in terms mm -hmm. of the ability to know the character um and then we just raise the question you know, in my terms, the question then becomes, is it the case that God's creating any for damnation uh, 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 creates an absolute or uh, discontinuity between us and God in terms of our moral intuitions and his moral nature? And I would think yes, because I would, you know, take that example of the man who lives a spotless life and then does one inexplicable evil thing. And even if you say the ends justify the means, I would say they do not. 
And I would say that the fact that he did that one thing doesn't mean he was 99% good and 1% evil. I would say he was, he was all evil if he could do that once. If you could purpose to the to do that, then the light that is in you is, is darkness. Hmm. That's like the light... break one light in the darkness. Hmm. Good. And and then God it God it God is light, and there is no darkness. But I mean, I'm not even sure what we're getting at here. But I, I, I'm sorry. No, I mean, well, I'm sleep so, deprived. I told you, I'm no, 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 no. It's not you at all. It's not. It's not. It's not you at all. I'm just trying to make sure I'm tracking right. Um. So everybody's so this is kind of getting at the the um uh how every man is sinful, right? Almost like a total depravity thing. Because I mean I if you say that one man because of this one deed of him killing a baby, uh that makes him ultimately evil. I mean I would to some well, it's degree like if I he would, did it intentionally. Yeah. But I'm I'm saying like you I I don't know. That's that's a very, very easy, easy leap for me to get there. Like I, as as awful as that sounds, like you think he's the, only ninety nine percent. No, no, only one percent evil. No, I'm saying I agree that that I think he's evil. I guess um, I'm saying that I'm uh, that that's not far away from me. That level of evil is not far away. Like, oh, I um, see what you okay. Like, like okay, like like even even um even today I was thinking not, about this. We're not ninety nine percent good and one percent evil we're all totally evil. we're all yeah we're all that that person or we at least could be very easily like even today i was thinking i was driving on the road and so you have i don't know where my mind was but there's a double yellow line so you're not supposed to pass on it and this guy passes me and it pisses me off and i'm like why does this piss me off like and then it was making me think you know if there wasn't a double yellow line i wouldn't care it would be like this negotiation that we would be more in communion, me and this other driver on the road. But the fact that there's this double yellow line, there's this law, and it's a double law, like don't do this. And I watch him do it. It ticks me off. But then it made me think of this one time I did it to this other guy, and I, this guy literally tried to kill me. Like I was going to go past him, and this guy in his truck swerved over and tried to run me off the road into a ditch. And it's like, but that little lapse, that moment where he tried to murder me probably was not that man. Like I could engage in road rage and get there so fast. Like this other guy passing so, me. So I let's, had this see, something in, in my analogy, that man is God. And so the thing is, he doesn't make any apology for it. It's totally premeditated. He never makes an apology for it. He never repents. Okay. And yeah. what I'm saying is the, 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 the discontinuity between ideal morality and that morality understood as a code, which does not repent, which understands that arrangement as the ideal order of things. I'm saying yeah. the discontinuity between ideal morality and whatever that morality is, is absolute. But you, you are sinful, but you can repent. You know? uh -huh. And you yeah. do repent for that. You're not, you're not standing before us and say, when I did it, I was totally fine. But when yeah, someone yeah. else does it, it's evil. But yeah, in I, some yeah. sense, in some sense, the Calvinist is saying that of God. When I do it, it's okay. But when you do it, it's not. And now, of course, you know, you're a creature and God is God. So that's what really where the Calvinists are going to emphasize the distinction. Although, you know, sometimes, see, often Calvinists will bring out analogies. And then, but there'll be distinctions, but the distinction won't always be like relevant distinctions, arguably. Like, I understand God is God and we're creatures, but you know, does that really make a difference regarding, you know, this whole question of like our morality 
his morality, our ways, his ways, and so on. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure what to make of that. It feels like as a, this question and this idea is beyond something I've thought about in enough detail. Because yeah, when you apply that logic to that, that man is God. Um, and if I'm being humble, uh, to me, if my my appropriate position towards God, uh, then I should turn and look at the God in the car and say, "Yeah, you should run me off the road," because uh, I broke the I broke the double yellow line. Like I should be I should be obedient to you, and that's that would be my like like I should be repentive of go, go like breaking this this law here. But then at the same time, if you're looking at it. There's something else where it's like, well, you wouldn't, you can't really picture Jesus in the truck running me off the road because he sees me crossing the double yellow line, but I don't know. Right, right, right. I it don't seems know. To, cause, cause the thing is, um, Jesus had a certain kind of morality, but if we say God created some for damnation, it seems to be creating a difference between the father's morality and Jesus morality. It does. Cause it just, the Calvinist God doesn't seem very Jesus like. So I think the the solution to that from a Calvinist point of view would be to say Jesus is actually Calvinist Jesus, that he himself was not actually willing that all should be saved. You know, that's why he spoke to some in parables, arguably, except that he says, I speak in parables that you don't understand. And on Calvinism, traditionally, like no one has the ability to understand anyway. So Jesus speaking to them in parables sounds a little bit redundant. Oh, Benjamin's mad on that. Okay, let me uh, stop the share screen so I can pause it or something. Unless you want to keep going, Mitch, do you got any comments? I'd like to hear what you think. Well, I just keep thinking. And yeah, like Carol and I have talked about it some already. And you and I, I think, even brought it up the other night, which is this idea that I, I do think you can get an idea uh, of what is good and moral by watching God. Uh, but he also, he doesn't just say, you know, watch me. Uh, he gives us like a, he gives us a law, right? And so he's given us this parameters, these parameters that are somehow best suited to us in our limitations. And he almost has to, to put it down on paper because of our limitations. And uh do you think he does that because we just kill each other? I don't know. I just, I'm trying to think of, uh, I'm trying He's, to reverse engineer this thing. Because in the beginning, he doesn't. It, it seems like there may be some utility for having someone that's above the law. Um, but I, I haven't thought that all the way through yet. Having what, someone that's above the law? Yeah, like, I don't know you, if there might be some utility to that. That's or what, if that's, that's the way things is, are. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. I would argue that's the martyr, I think, but that's just the martyrs above the ball. Yeah. I don't it, think but well my my keep going with that. No, that's all right. What were you gonna say? I still it's just it's just the normal crap I keep repeating all the time anyway. I mean, it's like, I, I don't need to go more with it. I'm just, I, I feel like this this subject we're on is literally like on the fringes of my mind. And I'm like, I'm probably saying a lot of stupid things to try to engage this conversation. I feel like you guys are continually tying it back in. So I want to say thank you for that. But 
Yeah, the martyr thing. I mean, that's just, you know, I mean, uh, same thing. Where the law, what's above the law is when the law uh, makes well, that it's, leap. It's the master and his emissary, right? You have a kind of master intuitive consciousness. And Mitch and I are more like emissaries. We, we kind of string the syntax together and just try to keep the expressions intelligible, but without the guiding light. The, the master? Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll take that. Jason, no, I'm just kidding. Jason I get a badge? Do I get like a that's badge? Way, that's the way Cass said it. Jason or a crown. is someone who can see. It's probably this hat. That's what it is. It's the crown. So if I just pass this hat on, then you guys will. That's where all the thoughts are. I don't, I don't know what you guys even say. This is how bad I am with it. Uh, this is how much I'm not the masters. I don't even know what that is referencing. I've heard that term before, but I'm actually not that familiar with it. The if master and Gilchrist, uh, <laughs> master and his emissary, the, speaking of the relationship between the right and the left, they work together, but only one, but as a master and a servant, only okay. one can properly be the master. I see. Right and left. Okay. Right and left thinking. Yeah. But it's like all the law is, I mean, the moral law that we've been given, it's, it's, it's in the direction of God. Like it, it'd be weird to even imagine the Lord offering sacrifices or keeping a Sabbath or all of these things. And, and so the, the law is, is directed at our behavior uh, in light of him and the, uh, uh, how we should act because he is who he is like, and so while we can uh, uh understand we can understand the law by watching his behavior uh to an extent uh it's it's probably not the best way to to i don't know i feel weird saying it but maybe it's not the best way to draw conclusions about what's going to happen because even the things that we've seen him do and the way we've seen him do it, uh, it's pretty safe to say that we didn't always have the full picture of why or the why of it or the, the particulars of it. It would be so funny if I had been on mute that whole time and you guys just didn't say anything. So no, I, I, I don't know if you guys I mean uh I, I told Jason like I'm kind of struggling today in terms of staying awake and I think you guys know what that's like the sleep deprivation it's just like um it alternates between lucidity and just like mindlessness sleep deprivation is dangerous man mm. it'll make a monkey of you quick <laughs> make a monkey of you quick nice it really, it really sits on me bad when I miss a lot of sleep. Just my mind kind of implodes and explodes. Do you ever get anything good out of it? Like, this, is it like a weird temporal madness type thing where you can? Sometimes, like, if there's you're in that lane where it's kind of a tipsiness, and you have sort of an artistic or social liberty. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what I mean. yeah. But no, it's usually hey, more negative than positive. Wow. We, we got a guest today. There's the real master. Nice. What's he got there? Is he drawing something? I don't know if it's paper. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember what you just said uh, about. Yeah, I'm trying to, I don't know. I'm trying to string these thoughts together that you guys have been going on. Um, well, we could just let the presentation play again. 
Okay. Because obviously, we're not really going to reach a final resolution on some of these philosophical questions. Yeah. All right. I'll, oh, wait. I got to share the screen again. I got to do that first. Share screen. Where is it? All right. Hit play. On one hand, Christians readily acknowledge God's universal creatorhood over all creatures and things. But when it comes to his universal fatherhood, they begin to draw arbitrary distinctions. Thomas Allen notes, we are told that God is not the father of all men. He is only their creator. What a total misapprehension of things these words imply. Now, Luke 3 sheds some light on this issue in terms of delineating the genealogy of Christ. In a rather impressive listing, Luke manages to tie Jesus' ancestry back all the way to Adam. But notice the progression in the final verse. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of Baal, the son of a tree trunk, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Thus, in Adam, we are all children, or in some manner, descendants of God. Man is God's child, and his sin consists of continually acting as if they were not so. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, first of all, it was not some frantic hippie liberal who instructed the masses to view God as father. Rather, it was the very incarnate son of God who even says regarding the wicked, quote, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? To those he deemed evil, Christ considered God to be their father. In the parable of the prodigal son, at what moment, pray tell, did the father cease to be the father of the prodigal? Did he strike his son from the family tree and disown him as a stain on his reputation? In the words of the apostle Paul, by no means. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul warns, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. One wonders whether the same implication could be made of God, who declares, Behold, all souls are mine. Is God worse than an unbeliever? Does he care for his own? Our Father in heaven never disowns his children. For as Paul informed the Areopagus in Athens, quote, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Part of the reason why Paul expects the Athenians to discern the divine nature is due to their own nature. They are God's offspring. At this point, some may wonder, but what about believers? I thought believers were the children of God, and indeed they are. But scripture often defines childhood or sonship in different senses. Repeatedly, the Bible affirms that Israel is God's firstborn son and that all Israelites are his children. Additionally, the angels in heaven are also referred to as sons of God. What also shall we make of the case of Christ, who is a son of God in a completely different sense, the monogenes, than any creature can be understood to be? From this, we gather that the description of childhood and sonship varies depending on the context. However, there is a sense in which all creation can be considered the progeny of God. In Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, quote, By grace of this, I bend my knees to the Father, from whom every kindred fathered 
in heavens and on earth received its name. In this passage, we learn that the father, literally the patera, is the one from whom every family, literally every patria, derives its name. As David Bentley Hart notes, this means that, quote, every family, clan, or people ultimately derives its lineage from the one God who is father of all. The word of God is clear. We are all children of God in some sense, others in more sense than one. So why is it that theologians are so opposed to the universal fatherhood of God? I believe it is because such a concept leads directly to the notion that God's punishments should be seen as educative and geared towards restoration, not vindictive and retributive. Why does a parent spank their child? It's because the child has personally offended the parent's honor and now the parent seeks yeah. retribution. Um, we should just pause here and comment on this well, paddle. This paddle is pretty intense here. It's got the holes in it and everything. It's probably one that whistles when it comes at you. Know that we've had, uh, I know that this issue has kind of come up when we're looking at the word all and how we want to, the idea of like, oh, some people want to say it means all here, but it doesn't mean all here and that sort of thing. Uh, so I guess we probably need to talk about uh, how the same word can't, can it ever be used differently in different places? It, it seems obvious uh, that it could be to me, uh, but then you have to have other determinants as to why you think it's being used differently in one place and not another, and then <clears throat> and uh, and so on. So, yeah, the reason I thought of it is because he talked about <clears throat> the word father, and he's like, look here, it's kind of saying. He's their, their father. And uh, my first thought was like, oh, well, maybe it's a different sense of, of the word. And maybe he talked about it and it just sort of went through my brain. But the, the sense in which he is, he created them. So in that way, he's a father. But what, what then does it mean? Just as many as received him, they had the right to become sons of God if, if they were sons of God already. So this is different connotations going on in different locations and and while it could seem like a double standard to to say oh it's different here i mean it just seems to be something that happens you were the sons of abraham you would do the works of abraham yeah stuff like uh, that i mean there's a, there's a lot of things here that are making people think the way they think about something uh it, yeah well i mean he asked the question doesn't why does a parent spank their child? And then doesn't it even say in Hebrews, like, if you are without chastening, you are illegitimate, illegitimate and not sons. Um, yeah, so there's kind of like this, I get what you're saying. It's, there's a, in the scripture, it seems to, uh, Jesus even says, you're sons of your father, the devil, right? So, but then he is one, but then it'll turn around and say, like, do, do we not have all one father? Like, do we not have all one? Yeah, it's like there's one God, one creator yes. of everyone. So we have to have a category first for words that are the same, but are used differently in different contexts. And then well, to figure out how to how to sort that out. Here's an idea. And this might even get back to the map thing. Because um, even in the New Jerusalem, right, you have the you have the sons of the kingdom. And then you have the nations. And that's in even after in the new heavens and the new earth, there's still these nations that bring in their, um, 
their glory. So you would all, you could almost say they're not necessarily sons of the kingdom. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make that a, like determination. I guess ultimately God would say something like that. But um, even so, in the Book of Kings, like if you watch the the Kings in um, Jerusalem, um, it'll it'll randomly say uh, it, this one's the son of David. You know, it's just kind of weird. It'll be like this, this one's the son of his father and he did evil works. And then this one did good works in his father, as his father, David did. And it's like there, it's not his immediate father. It's like calling it back to David. So it's kind of like God sees fatherhood a different way than we do. But this is something I really, they, they use, they use, it's like, they use these phrases to indicate whether you're behaving like this or that. And yeah. your parents do that too. It's like, are you my son? If if so, you know, you'll do this and, and so on. And and the, you know, there's even like disowning language, but then there's always the the ultimate truth of of fatherhood that you know can can be denied like verbally. Um. So it's it's like it is in different senses. Now now in what sense is Jesus the Son of God? He, well, they the only begotten Son of God. So he's the only one who's begotten, not created. But in another sense, he's the only son of God because of how he behaves. He's the son. And so like he's the model. So I, to me, it's like a language of like how close are how closely are you approximating the image of your father? Okay. And and it's not not to say that God is not their father in the ultimate sense, because who else can create? Who else is the source of life? And that's what it means to be the father. Yeah. Did the did the prodigal son lose his sonship when he was out? in the with the harlots like that would be the kind of the, the answer question, is right? yes and no the answer is yes and no but ultimately he's always the son i think the answer is is no but did did esau lose his sonship when he saw his birth see this is where it really gets me i don't know why it's just like and this is where i think it's which what what is annoying is i think it's this weird tug of my heart that kind of goes beyond scripture which i I tend to, uh, where like, so you have the prodigal son, it's like, yes and no, he left. And then I'm like, well, even if his father, his face isn't towards his father's face, if his father's even looking the other way, if his father forgot about him, it's like, uh, what happens when his father goes to his older brother and asks, where's your brother? And is he get, is his older brother supposed to say, am I my brother's keeper? Or is he supposed to say, hold on, let me go find him. And that's what gets me is that's why I'm like, that's to me what pulls the, the prodigal son, even if he is still with the hogs, it should be the older brother's responsibility to go get him. <laughs> and that's what I think gets me. But I'm like, I don't know that I have, I have ambiguous scriptures to back that up, but there's nothing definite, you know, where it's like, um, but well, it's like, the scripture it's, had to tell you everything, then it wouldn't really be the spirit anymore. It would be the letter. Yeah, it's that that's what always kind of pulls me back towards the the universalism thing. And it gets at the whole idea of um that when Judah says, I, I I'm not going before my father's face without my brother beside me. And I'm like, it's that's just what always I think just just gets me. Um and like you mentioned before, Cal, it's like this weird uh what is that personality type you were saying that kind of leans more towards uh you were saying neur neuroticism or something it leads more and i think that maybe is some of that bleeding in there is it's just like this that personality type is wanting to uh where i yeah i it, this is getting off base and into 
I think out there though. But anyway, so that's, I don't know. I guess I was just bringing up that, that idea of the, when the prodigal son's that far off, is he, how is he still connected? And if so, how is he? And to me, that would be the connection that would, that would keep him to the father would be his brother's connection. Like even, even if he severs, if the prodigal son severs his relationship with the father, it's like, well, he still has a freaking brother. Like where's his brother right well, now? Well, that, that, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting take. I mean, to me, the point of the story is the asymmetry where from his point of view, he thinks he can sever the connection. Like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not your son. You're not my father. But from the father's point of view, it, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, indeseverable or whatever that word is. And, and um, yeah, I would say that in that story, the father does not condemn uh, the prodigal son. The prodigal son just condemns himself. And um, it is because he sees, he, he realizes how great his father's love was for him and then in realizing like the purity and selflessness of that love he sees he sees his own faults in the the in, in the light of that of that um love and um his suffering isn't because he's worried that he um won't be returned to his former lifestyle but if he could then he would be happy yeah. Even if he were returned to it, he would feel miserable because he, he himself condemns himself and feels like he doesn't deserve it. But the father apparently is willing that he should just be fully reinstated. So there's an asymmetry that's going on that's really crucial to the, the prodigal son parable. Yeah. He went and got it coffee or tea or something i'm jealous right now i have to go grab a soda mitch you got anything to say to that i might have to break out the mountain dew for this presentation yeah i think i'm going to have to i'm gonna to have to get a diet dew i got them in my fridge gotta keep it stocked um good one, man. i uh yeah i mean i i, I like this idea I like almost i almost want to hang out on this idea a little bit more and i think just maybe the reason is because of the recent conversations i've been having with jacob as well and he's brought that up a few times of the the uh the only begotten jesus is the only begotten um but then uh and jacob will say the same thing aren't, aren't we all children of god like he's in whole kind of reference the same thing this guy is referencing like we're god is all our creator we're all children of god uh, why would why would christians make this claim that jesus is the only begotten but i think it has something to do with you're talking about cal is it's the this asymmetry the reflection of the father that he is the only begotten, but then at the same time, it's like, uh, what is well, theosis me, it, then? What's like, theosis? like what, like what you said, like when when you said that you're 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 sons of the devil or something like that, but then yeah. turns around and say, don't we all have one father? To me, that's really illustrating the nature of it. It's like, yes, everyone has one father. Yeah. Um, and it's um, all right. But, it's but all. In it's that the question passage. of whether you're acting like it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the asymmetry, as in the prodigal son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even um, gosh, there's a lot here. We should probably just continue with the video. But the, even that, that it's that one passage, like you're saying, that this whole idea we're getting at Jesus addresses, like in that one passage in in the Gospel of John, and it's it talks about because they raise that question, don't we have a, we have 
all one father, what God, they say that statement. And then he goes through that list. And then it even says, then it even gets into in what way is it's almost even gets into this idea of in what way is Jesus actually the son of God, um, which something I want to explore more. And I think it might get me in trouble actually um, was with in terms of like Trinitarian stuff or whatever, but uh, uh, where he said Jesus, because Jesus even says, dude, does not the scripture say you are all gods or something like that, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. Or maybe it has something to do with theosis, um, but we probably shouldn't, but we should probably stick with the video, I guess. And I'll go down that. Do you want me to hit play again? You can get your, your diet, dude. You can do the do. I can I can grab that when I hit play. Is that, okay. Do you want me to do that? Okay, that way something's right. going. It's not just silence. Well, right. well, I, well no, no. I, or no, is no, it because the... You want play it or no? Okay. Parent intends to chasing their child so that their child might come to realize their wrongdoing. So what are some of the implications from God's universal fatherhood? Well, William Barclay wisely said, quote, if God was no more than a king or judge, then it would be possible to speak of his triumph if his enemies were agonizing in hell or were totally and completely obliterated and wiped out. But God is not only king and judge, God is father. He is indeed father more than anything else. No father could be happy while there were members of his family forever in agony. No father would count it a triumph to obliterate the disobedient members of his family. The only triumph a father can know is to have all his family back home. Our next category is justice. That guy who he showed is William Barclay. That dude is a for real Unitarian Universalist. Um, or at least not like, not necessarily like, confessional but you know those people's confessions are so broad that like they almost don't have one but like um except that i suppose they're intolerant they're 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 intolerant of intolerance um uh he yeah you know he, he was like he, he had sort of a semi-adoptionist christology it's like jesus was human and then he became divine i think that's what big barterman will argue um that that the older manuscript variant said that um uh this is my son in whom i am well pleased today i have begotten thee um i don't know how on how firm a foundation ehrman's view ultimately rests i think that the new testament scholars they don't have very much evidence for anything and they, they do a lot of like speculation and guesswork it's like it's kind of tenuous ultimately but but i think barclay's position was like that so he was a real unitarian universalist um, Jason is just flirting. He's just dancing on the edges. Mitch, say something. Uh, I need to hear that babble. What should I do? Should I play some more or do one? Okay. And this is a quote from John Stuart Mill. To say that God's goodness may be different in kind from man's goodness, what is it but saying with a slight change of phraseology that God may possibly not be good? My name is Nikta, and this is how I found the truth. 
You think that Joseph you guys Mavic think that that's notes how many Christian uh, a logical statement? Wait, what did he just say? I got distracted by the John ad. Stewart Mill. Yeah. I was a statement. I... Uh, it was no. that it, to say that God's goodness might be different from man's goodness is another way of saying that God isn't good. And so there the question is, is it binary or is it a continuum? You know, and that's what I was raising in my own, in my own way. Uh, the question about the guy who lives a morally uh, exemplary life and then does like one heinous, like incomprehensible thing. Is that is that like 99% good? Like it's a continuum, there's shades of gray, shades of good, or is it just like just evil? It's like not good at all. And I think the nature of reality, it's like, you know, multiplicity in unity, right? That you have a you have a finite or binary distinction in underlying medium. It always admits of both. It always admits of this. There's always going to be this question. For me, for me, the answer to that question, I, for me, I would agree with with John Stuart Mill in certain cases or in a certain sense. And I would agree with Mitch, Mitch in the sense, does it always necessarily mean that? No. In certain cases, it could mean that. I would, I would, I would submit. Mitch, comment, man. We pulled you in here. Gotta hear what you, your thoughts on this. He doesn't. You, need you to probably got more thoughts than I do. Uh, yeah, he I can, don't know that. Like, know. The, the gift, the gift with um, uh, Frodo and Gandalf, or I think keep keep your secrets. He's just he, Mitch has just been so quiet lately. I'm trying to cause him to stumble. You know, it's like, you know, he's doing a great job of of holding his tongue, and um, I'm trying to draw it out of him. I'm being a bad influence here. Just remain silent. <laughs> Be wise. I Go find ahead. no fault in this man. <laughs> you want me to play it some more? All right. In conversations, quote, not only appeal inexplicably to a different motivational structure in explaining hell than the account that makes love God's dominant motive when accounting for heaven, but also seem positively at odds with God's continuing to love certain persons when acting out of justice towards them. To put mildly, quote, whereas God's love and grace predominate in a discussion of heaven, the focus shifts completely when turning to the topic of hell. So is there a way by which universalists can have their cake and eat it? You know, uh, unless you're dairy free. Uh, can God's love and justice be reconciled one to another, or must we cling to one attribute whilst disparaging the other? It is my belief that the retributive theory of punishment is incapable of achieving such a prospect, whereas the restorative vision better models the spirit of Christ by reconciling love and justice. So let's talk about the wrath of God. A very well-known passage on this is Romans 1, 18 through 25, which says, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, the Greek word that is used here for gave up. God gave them up. You know, it's it's like Paul, I want to say 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I'm sure um, he was going to go to that next. Well, I, I don't that? want to say, I don't, I don't want to pin it all on some proof text, but, but um, where, where he talks about, because that is, that is a context of believers. Um, if I was proof That's texting from that, if I was proof texting from that, that would be begging the question. But, you know, he talks about giving this stepmom sleeping guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that he might be saved in the day of the Lord. God giving you over to what? And, and so the question is, here's one question. Is sin uh, sinful or evil? Uh, because God punishes, as a, as a matter of fact, God punishes you for it. But if he didn't, it would be great fun. Or is it the case that sin is evil because it's intrinsically harmful to you? So when you're, when you're in sin, you have two options. You can repent um, and ask for mercy. You can ask that the sentence be commuted, but that implies that you recognize the judge as a judge and one who can commute your sentence. Um, or you have to serve it um, because, because um, uh, there's, you, won't, you won't admit that you're in error of your own. You have, to be, you have to see for yourself the consequences of your sin that's the only way you can be disabused of it because you're not going to you're not going to willingly turn um and... i would think that that kind of, that makes sense to me you have to that statement you made i wish i could just quote or short um that you have to see your own sin in order to actually uh what was it bear the consequences of it or actually um because you don't otherwise I feel like you don't consciously or psychologically ever uh, confront it, not even, or, or, or ever even punished for it necessarily. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If like, if I actually, I could be continually living in sin or continually like doing an evil thing and even being chastened for it physically. Um, but until I actually come to see my evil ways or reckon with it or something like that in my mind i never actually that's a good point am punished for it the consequences experiencing the consequences don't always lead us to repentance actually yeah yeah and it's like i don't even experience the consequences psychologically i'm just like fumbling around like why the hell is all this bad stuff happening to me? Like when I had warts on my body and stuff, not to say, I mean, I'm not trying to make the claim like God smote me with leprosy or something, but it's like, I didn't have any, um, it was just a frustration of pain that I was going through. There was no like, there was no awareness psychologically to any sort of evil. It was like, there was no, no, no repentance or no, no punishment necessarily even psycho i mean there was in a sense that like i didn't like not feeling good or something but there was no you know what i'm getting at does it make sense at all yes i do i want to respond to one thing the idea that sometimes the consequences don't awaken you to the to the gravity of what you've done and they don't lead you to repentance in the limit um 
that if if it's the case that one can sin without ever seeing the error of one's ways, willingly or unwilling, unwillingly, just in neither case does one ever see the error of one's ways, then it's like on some level, sin is sin is right. It's not even it's not even wrong for that person because it's never experienced to be wrong. It's always rewarding. Um, it it always remains worthy of of, of worship and and pursuit. Um, and then we can say that you no, know, God is the greatest, and sin is not as good as God. But for some people, sin will always be the greatest. They will never be disabused. They will never see the error of their ways, willingly or unwillingly. And we're going to try to hold those two statements together. Like God is the greatest thing in some objective or ultimate or transcendent sense. And yet there are some people who will simply never see it. They will never be forced to see it by anything. It doesn't seem that God's greatness is uh, is objective in that sense. Well, no one, it, could, some people are never, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I think they could see it right in, uh, <clears throat> and, and still participate in something lesser uh, by choice. They could see that God is better than sin, but also see sin as as worth doing. Yeah, it's the bowl of soup for the birthright kind of thing. No, I don't think that is the case, because I think God and sin are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, no. Yes and yes. That's a funny one, because we experience God and we experience sin. So... I mean, ultimately, because what I'm saying is, yes, in this life, it is possible to sin and experience the consequences, but still not have experienced enough that you're going to repent. You're still not, you still haven't hit rock bottom. We know addicts don't hit rock bottom right away. It takes yeah. them some time. Yeah, um, the... Now, sorry, go ahead. To your... Oh, I'm sorry, Jason, go ahead. No, 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 you, you didn't finish your thought. I want to hear your thought first. No, it's an unrelated thought. It's an unrelated thought. It was a quotation to illustrate what you were saying earlier. Well, I just, I'm, I'm really trying, like, I'm thinking, here's where my mind's going, because I think it was, I think it's related to what you just said, is like, there's this, this, uh, the rock bottom thing. Um, and I thought of, for some reason, that was kind of, that, that phrase actually was coming to my mind recently. And I was saying that, that that's Christ, you know, uh, for a lot of people, you know, you're not in a bottomless pit, you actually do hit a bottom. And it is the foundation of all things. And it's like, that's Christ. But this, or uh, Sorry, go ahead. Or is it a seared conscience? You know, like what is rock bottom oh, exactly? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, see the thing because Esau sounded very rock bottom once he realized yeah. that he traded the greatest good for something lesser. But he, after seeking repentance with tears, was not able to find it. Is that because it's his the conscience same thing. Seared? I don't know. But you don't want the Holy the... Spirit is the sear is love is the love of God and it's the searing of the conscience because the searing of the consciousness of the conscience comes when you see that love. And you see what it is not. You see what it is. You see what it isn't. But that's only when you see and experience that love. So it's it's the same thing. The searing of the conscience, and um, the uh, the 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 love of God, peace is the peace that passes understanding. Because it says God is love, and it says God is peace. Mitchell Mitchell showed me that in Judges somewhere. Um, uh, God is God is peace. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. Those four things, as far as I can tell. But anyway, I'm saying that it's both. I think it's both the searing of the conscience and the. I'm not sure. I'm... But if that which could lead you to finally being reunited with 
the most objective good can no longer be found. Uh, sort of troubling. The, I'm so, I think I'm lost now. Well, if it can never be found, then I think that would be the case where one can spend eternity believing that some illusion is true. Um, but if an illusion is never falsified, in what sense is it really an illusion? And if sin is never seen to be by the sinner himself um, uh, uh, unsatisfactory, um, really, you know, so existentially alien to their nature as to be death, then sin is never really it's never really wrong and god is never and god and his righteousness and his 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 love and his life they're they're never really right in that transcendent or ultimate sense because they god can be the greatest thing supposedly and yet someone can go through eternity without 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 ever seeing it with something else being the greatest thing to them so it, it doesn't god's goodness is no longer transcendent or ultimate or objective it all becomes um uh perspectival um in a postmodern sort of way depends well, entirely on your point of view we've started spinning our wheels here before cal because i'm still not it's not obvious to me that a person would have to be deluded about something to to make for a life make for themselves a life like that well what i'm saying is if he's choosing sin in preference to god i'm asking whether in so doing does he see sin for what it is because if he does then God is not greater than him. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's just, there's something that's, that's keeping me from kind of assenting to that. I'm not sure what it is. It may be that it's, it's the case and I just, there's something, there's something blocking me here. I mean, I could always be wrong. That's not, you know, that's obviously not unthinkable. Yeah, it's a toss-up. I know we've, I, we've gotten stuck here before, and uh, I guess I haven't really... Uh, I don't think anyone has thought this through. I think very, very few people have actually looked at, looked at this from the standpoint of the goodness of the good and what, what, they, what is called ethical intellectualism. I think that ethical intellectualism is a, you know, the in other words, the idea that that if if you knew the true nature of reality, you wouldn't do evil because evil is evil objectively. It's evil for reasons having to, that that transcend your mere personal perspective and preferences. The evil of evil is rooted in the fact that it is not God, um, and that's that's something that has a kind of. Uh, you know, nature or existence outside you. That the fact that evil is not God transcends your your personal existence and perspective. Um, it's not it's not completely what's the word divorced from it or absolutely independent of it. But it, but but I'm saying it does go beyond it. Is the 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 evil we're talking about? Is this related to the the passage in Lilith that you read, Cal? Where we're, we're Ooh, trying a little to think bit because because I because I would say that I would say that love is the affirmation of your identity, but really love is the affirmation of one's true identity. Because if you love if you affirm someone in their false identity, you're not loving them. 
uh, like, you know, if there's a rock star and that, you know, you're telling him, yeah, you really are the greatest. You really can do this, you know, uh, uh-huh. you know, extra line of cocaine, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and um, that's not really love. Um, and, and, and death is the negation of your identity. But I would say that only a false identity can be negated. Yeah. Um, but is there, I guess what I'm getting at, and I don't know if this is related, but is there somebody that can actually not be delusional and see evil, like you're saying, and see the good and actually say, uh, I guess that's why I was thinking of the Lilith thing is where she, where you see your creator and say, I don't want any part of this. Like, give me death upon death upon death upon death because if, if I don't want. she sees creator for who he truly is when she says that and yeah. still prefers death. That means that God's superiority to all other non-God things is not objective or transcendent or ultimate. It is totally situational or perspectival, so that it, it depends completely on who you are. It's not some transcendent fact of reality that God is the greatest thing. Whether or not he is is totally up to you, but it could be Pepsi Cola. I think you Whatever. just you just you just made another leap where I'm like my mind's trying to catch no, up. That's interesting. But it's very interesting point. Yeah. I don't I don't know if that's because it's even our perspective that's leading us to that position. So if somebody were all knowing and they they tell you the facts of the matter, you know, I'm all good. Uh, so yeah, to say, so it's either they, they're deluded by it, uh, they don't believe him or, or they recognize it and, and by recognizing it and choosing against it, it proves it's not true. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I can I share a thing that was running through my head, and then you guys can tell me if it's actually related at all. And this is one of those things like where, like you mentioned, like you don't really want to share about yourself, but I feel like it might be related. Um, so when we we're talking about repentance and kind of turning back to God and like this chastening process, and so then it being like even the physical aspect of it and the mental aspect of it and everything. And I mentioned in our last conversation with Craig that I, I sometimes see the, the fig, the fruit of the fig, not the tree, but the fruit as repentance. And there's this passage in, I think it's in Jeremiah, where it's got good pigs and good figs and bad figs. And God's like, these figs are bad. Like, I, I don't want this. This is, this is junk. Uh, I, don't, I don't want these figs. And it reminds me of Esau where, or whatever. I think it's Esau. Yeah. Repenting for the blessing. And so, when I had that pain in my face, uh, nerve damage or whatever, I was seeking healing. And uh, it was like I, I had this repentance going on where I wanted the blessing. I wanted the, I wanted life and I wanted to be closer to God. But it was like, it got to this point where like, it just felt like these figs are bad. Like you just want, this is a, these are the figs of the body, the figs of the flesh you're trying to give me. Then I got to this mental point where it literally got to this point where I was like, uh, it broke me. I was broken not only physically, but then I was broken mentally. And I remember thinking, God, you're not even here. Like you're not even with me anymore. Uh, and it was, and then I remember reading a scripture and it was just like, I had this weird sudden awareness of like, okay, there you are. Like you're there. And then it was just like, I, you know, I don't even care anymore. It was like, I don't care if I have to deal with the pain forever. It was like this weird where it was almost like the fig wasn't 
bodily it wasn't mental it was just like it was in the heart and then it was and it was it was something beyond um kind of like you're saying beyond this per perception or something like god somehow moved past it moved past uh the the flesh the mind and got to the heart and so it's like could can anybody if he's able to do that is can you still deny god at that level if he's even like you're saying if you can still hold up this mental image of god in your head it's like he's able to burn that down too it seems like to where you can't even uh yeah this i i don't know what i'm getting at is that even related what, what you're talking about is, is something so deep and really scary it should scare you i think if you have if someone has even the faintest inkling of what you're talking about it should scare them it scares me it goes well beyond philosophy um i mean it, it has to do with what jesus experienced on the cross when he said father uh, why have you forsaken me doesn't he say that yeah i think that he does feel god's absence i i think that that he feels himself entirely human and entirely mortal at that point yeah like you can't you can't even see yeah you're like you're all your mental cognition is even broken down at that moment but it's still like there's still something at the heart like god does not see as man sees man looks at the outward appearance or looks there but it's like he's it's still like, able to... like at that moment when jesus felt god farthest from him god was was in him reconciling the world to himself not counting the trespass the trespasses of mankind against them so it doesn't say that the father poured his wrath out on jesus it says that when jesus was on the cross feeling himself most distant from god god was in him reconciling the world to himself right yeah and it was really because Jesus was was able to go that distance that that God could be, you know, in him, like more fully than in anyone else, kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not trying to like turn this in a different direction per se. I feel like this kind of maps on to I think uh, I could be wrong in that. I'm just I guess I'm wondering if it does in that in that thing that Jesus went through. If that maps on to even. Um, the question of whether or not someone can actually see God um, and deny him because it's like Jesus didn't see him in that moment. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's some, some sort of relation there, but it could be off base. I don't know. Well, maybe, yeah, I guess it would be possible. And this goes with the illusion category, maybe that God doesn't fully reveal himself to everyone. Or that it's not possible in my in my mind that that he would not be the ultimate good, and so that would be why people were able to resist him. But maybe if if evil, it's whether or not evil exists. So if evil exists, it's it's looking at the highest good and and not wanting, and that's just what evil is. Uh, and it, it doesn't reflect at all on on the highest good or on the ultimate good. I'm sorry. See, that was where I kind of had a lapse of concentration. Yeah. So I guess maybe I don't necessarily think that 
the ultimate good also means that it uh, is completely irresistible. It would be irresistible if the ultimate good willed it on those resisting it. But maybe the category is a person can be fully informed, can fully see, and can reject. And that's what evil is. That's evil and that exists. And so, so, okay, that's, that's good. And so the thing is, for the person who rejects God, you know, in that, in that case, he's fully informed, can, can God ever be God to that person? Because if to you, God is not the greatest good, then is he God? And if, yes. if, if, oh, I'm sorry. I was saying yes. So in other words, you think that God can be God to someone without being that person's highest good, like in their mind, that, per that, that God can be God to that person. Because to me, if like, whatever someone prefers and preference to God is God to them. Right. They've, they've made for themselves a false idol, uh, but God remains God. Uh, the true but not God. to them but not to them even to and them so, in the sense that they they recognize him as god uh and even bow their knee to him in some sense but but not him. not in as great a submission as they do to their true god the true god of their heart which is a false idol yeah and, and then the it's just another the false idol is that is assuming the truth of god's supremacy to say it's you can't say it's a false idol without acknowledging the transcendent uh, supremacy of God's uh, you know, worthiness. Um, and so what I'm saying is for the person who's fully informed and passes God up in favor of some cheap thing, is, is God God to that person? And if that person can never see God as the greatest good, can God ever be God to that person? That, that would be my question. Into the, the, the thing we were getting at earlier with uh, the word father. It's like, yeah, it's, it's literally your father. Uh, he created you, gave you life, but you've not acted as a son to him. So it's, he remains literally their God, even if they've not uh, responded to him as their God. Yeah, and I think, like, but then if all the other... I don't think that's an exact analogy. You know, but it's it's caught up in the these words that are being used in separate ways or you could say uh, what is god well it's the it's the ruler of all things or you could say what is god it's that which uh you've chosen to follow or yeah calvinists do want to distinguish between certain ways of talking you know, they're all about distinctions but well, everyone you know, does right um yes everyone does um but you know i i would say that the distinctions that are uh, set forth in Calvinism are not ultimately uh, valid distinctions in many cases. Yeah, and that's an ongoing debate, I would think. I mean, but I, I'm the one. I'm the one who myself just said that the analogy you suggested between um, um, uh, being able to pass over um, God in favor of some cheap false idol, like Pepsi Cola or or uh, you know, a, a slot machine, if one is a gambling addict. Um, a, and the analogy of like, God is actually your father, even though you 
presently don't realize it. I said, I don't think that's really a good analogy, or maybe it is because how to put it, um, uh, like, like the prodigal son, uh, you, you will, um, eventually, uh, realize it. Um, or, I mean, maybe I should say, how to put it, just, if you were to say that, that, you know, someone passing over God in favor of sin is analogous to someone uh, not not acting like God is their father, despite the fact that he literally actually is. Um, then I, I would say it's begging the question that the one who presently does not recognize or act as if God is his father will not someday, you know, bend the knee and, and confess. So I, I think that maybe it is a valid analogy, but it, it's just begging the question whether um, it has to happen at some point in the future. I think we're we're trying to to bring this in maybe a little bit more, like the Pepsi Cola analogy. I think I understand that, um, and all these other sins or whatever. Um, I think we could argue these might be these little false idols, whatever we want to put above God, is uh, will be burned up or could easily be burned up. But I think what were the evil were, I guess, trying to hone in on is the betrayer, right? Is this the son of perdition? Where where it's the one that's that fully sees God, fully knows God, and said, I want to kill you. I want to betray you. I want to stab you in the back. And is that a real <laughs> a real evil? Like Mitch is saying, is that is that does that ex actually exist? I, I don't I don't know that I would say that he fully sees God. Yeah, that still remains the question. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's just not obvious to me that that person would have to be deleted uh to to not choose or that god would have to be less than totally good for someone not to choose yeah 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 because it, it's hard to say that they could fully i don't i, I don't know that the betrayer could fully see god because he also says um that he's lost right uh it doesn't i mean which is it was just a weird word and i don't know the hebrew word for that but it's it makes you almost think that he's he's gone astray or he's blind in a sense like he doesn't see the full picture there's something in hebrews it's similar to the son of perdition like it's possible for those who have, who have tasted and then turned tasted uh, yeah yeah and I, I can't remember exactly how it goes yeah i got it right here i'll, I'll open it up uh yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's it's too bleak don't read it it, it is <laughs> don't want me to read it there's there's so few passages in hebrews that are very very bleak and sobering but that's i think why i kind of like them because i'm like shake you wake you up a little bit too but i don't know the other thing too though uh i don't know if this is related in here but um the wrath of god um there's always this relationship in scripture with that being with that and jealousy so i think to me it's kind of connected of uh why would you be jealous of something you don't that's not yours <laughs> it's not not your son you know like why ultimately like if you pour out your wrath I, I don't know there's this connection like uh jealousy is a husband's fury you know and it's like god gets jealous for his creation even like he's jealous for his kingdom and judgment begins at the house of god but then eventually it it poured out on the whole earth yeah, I you're, mean, there's you're, jealous you're asking the question. It's like, unless God really 
desired that they should love him back? Why is he angry at them when they sin? Um, yeah. Just like, because presumably he knows why they're doing it. He knows everything about them. And generally, you know, when, when we understand someone's, well, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. That's a, that's a, like, why not, but, why not just pull, pull your, your, your kingdom out and then let the, let the world do its own thing and burn, kill itself. Like it's, like, I mean, which cert- I guess certainly, cer- certainly in Calvinism, um, you know, God himself in meticulous providence is the one who makes sinners sin, but then he becomes angry at them too. And you might say, well, he has to be angry at them because he's justice. But the thing is on Calvinism, uh, good is just whatever God does. And in the case of the sinners, God happens to be making them sin. So why isn't that actually good? Why is it evil such that he turns on it in, in anger? I, th- I don't think a Calvinist would say that. Can you, yeah, can you clarify this this idea, Mitch? Because I, I struggle with this as well, because I think it's so Certainly Romans. some Calvinists do hold to the doctrine of meticulous divine providence, such that yeah, but I don't is think... the direct cause of everything that happens. Even if you think that it's even if you think that it's contradictory, they would they would say does, God doesn't cause anyone to sin. But how how did they? Um, yeah, oh, well, I, the, I, no, no. It, well, Calvin Calvin said that. Okay. He said God he causes said people to sin. Scripture said that that God is the author of of sins. He's 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 the direct author of them. Yeah. Um, scripture I, shows him not merely permit permissive of them, but the author of them. He said that quite clearly. But he said that it was a mystery on his view as to how God could be the author of it, but not morally responsible. For him, that was the mystery. Um, not all Calvinists do say that, um, uh, just as a matter of fact. Calvinism isn't one thing. Calvin himself did say that. Okay. Incredible. But, uh, and, I th- and I understand there's probably a lot of Calvinists that do say that, and I know there's a lot of them that probably don't even think uh maybe too much about i think most of them would ideas, not have but, thought about it yeah yeah have not actually thought thought about it very much but um but so what is this but i i'd like to get like ask you more mitch about what um because that's that's something that's been hard for me to understand too is like god being the you know and i think the reason being is that passage in romans where it talks about romans 9 and it sounds like he created pharaoh to be evil to uh and that's one that's referenced a lot so is he like how how does that? Because you seem to object to that when Kyle brought it up. So how is that? Can you explain that more? Like how is that reconciled or explained in Calvinism? Not not even projecting like that. You're like you said you don't necessarily say you're a Calvinist, but you I know you're more familiar with them and you've talked to more Calvinists probably on a regular basis than I do. I actually would think Kyle would probably be more familiar with his theology than I would, uh, but I do hang out with a lot of them. Um, and I just can't even imagine. I mean, there's, I just can't even imagine what I'm saying that God causes sin. Like, I, they'd probably like kill over, you know, somebody said. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, certainly it's, it's all caught up in this God is omniscient and God is the uh, creator. Uh, so it's, I think it always kind of bumps up into that. Like, if God knows it all and then causes, into being the, the omniscient and um uh what is it um the the, the, um, the meticulous um, sovereignty stuff doesn't seem crazy to me um it's kind of the the combination confusing where the wires get crossed is the 
omnipotent and omniscient being trying to connect hold those two together or something like that, that. And, and just even if you drop the omnipotency if you just say oh god created things right and he knew it was going to happen right so and it's uh but i i like the the book analogy that we hang around with sometimes uh but i mean it doesn't solve everything it's just the book analogy yeah it's that and it goes back into the sub realities and super realities that we have fun yeah. talking about sometime craig and i are still kind of trying to hash this out uh but i don't think it, my perspective's helpful in this movie. it always is but if you if you write a book uh well you created the characters and yeah but in the story they're the ones that do the things yeah uh, so i don't know yeah see this is why i think because i this is why i'm like i don't know if mine would be helpful this is just my opinion on it and like i said opinions are good for being destroyed but i don't think i see god as omnipotent but i don't see him as um no no wait which one is it i'm trying to think uh he's all knowing in that he knows the end from the beginning but that's that's all that's that's it and that's all you need to know and it doesn't bother me like if i were to say does the beginning include or does the end include um sinners who are suffering for their sins and if it does uh it's it's still in the same kind of conundrum well i think maybe because of where i'm at now is like kind of just this continual reconciling of everything it's like an eternal thing of constantly pulling into himself and so it's like like you have a son you have a child your intention is to have a child and your intention is to love the child so that's the end and that's the beginning and that never stops no matter what and it's like so everything that happens between the bookends whatever your child decides to do it's like you don't agree with it it's uh, it could be whatever but the, the two bookends are the same and it's like this is love and this is love and it's gonna just keep going and going and so that's where i'm like he spoke the end from the beginning and he knows the end from the beginning all the middle stuff doesn't even matter necessarily it's gonna get there because i love you and i love you and that's that <laughs> it's like it's if oversimplifying the, it but if at the end of the book uh th- those who have believed are invited outside of the book and those who have rejected him stay inside the book and the love is just squishing them <laughs> that's a crazy <laughs> stupid thing i just said um <laughs> well, yes I, I don't know what a lot of people not, do what are they crazy or stupid i mean i'll take it lots of calvinists do like the the, the authorial analogy I don't know how I feel about it personally. That you know, like either. on some level, my response to the authorial analogy is very um, unimaginative. Because um, you know, someone will say like, um, you know, Parker said a case. He's a very cool Calvinist guy, like super humble, super smart, super. He's actually really good at jujitsu. Um, uh, he. Um, uh, I think, you know, he would say something like, um, um, it, it, you know, that, that we, what, I don't, I don't even, I, I mean, the, 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 the thing that would bother me, I guess what I'm saying about um, the authorial analogy is that I would say that we're not, we're not just characters. Like what we do um, is, is real. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so if, 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 if I made someone do something horrible in real life by like, you know, controlling everything they did, that would be very bad. <laughs> um, but if I do it in a story, it's okay because it's not real. Now that's very unimaginative and very obvious, but because obviously the story stories are not real, but I haven't really thought through the, the authorial analogy. I don't know what I think about it. Well, it falls apart for me because at least at the very end, I always say that those that are in the sub-reality of the, of the novel are invited into the super-reality of the author. And obviously that doesn't that, ever happen in our... That's, in that's our, interesting. That makes me think of like you're, you've gone through the fire, like, hey, like Craig's analogy of hell winds type thing. Because uh, you, you've been... Um, gosh, so I want to... I sorry, I want to hit on the authorship thing. The author thing, I think Kyle's totally right, is that you're... You're living creatures. You're not just, you're not just uh, statues, sort of thing. Because it's the same thing with art. Like if you yeah, created yeah. a piece, if you create a piece of art, you want to let it go to other people's interpretation. That way, it's living. If you, if someone looks at it and you say, "No, it can't mean that," like it's, it's it has, to, it's only this. Then it's like, then the art dies in a way. Like if you let it live. So any authorship, it like in your creation is actually living. Um, and you want it to be more and more alive, like Pinocchio in a way, but at least they're living in the story. I mean, in the story, they all look at each other, the characters are real, they all look at each other and say, Yeah, we're real, you know. Yeah, well, even people that write stories, if you actually talk to them, they're usually t discovering their characters or something like their characters ha almost have a life of their own. It's like they ask the characters what the characters are going to do, and then the characters do those things. Like, they don't, well, the author does it, man. I got news for those, those authors. They're doing the author, it themselves. The author gets to kill them, is what it is. The author, I don't <laughs> think, gets to determine. The author's like, you've gone too far. <laughs> no, that's a bad analogy, especially for making my point. But I like the bookends thing, though, because that almost makes you think of a birth, right? Like, you got to go through these two, these two. It's like this, like when it's, I don't know. That's what, that's what image that came to my mind. And you got to pass through this this door it was weird i was when i described the bookends as love i was kind of seeing it as like almost like these open bookends and you have them like solid like you gotta which i think both are right in a sense because i think it's the same thing with like the wrath of god and the love of god is kind of like it's uh you gotta yeah i don't know i'm not sure what to make of that but i kind of like that idea I think at the end it's like a, it turns into a pop up book for those who believe they become like three D. Yeah, another and dimension. Then they're in the world of the author, but still somehow lesser. <laughs> it's the world of the author. They've been glorified. <laughs> the great analogy. So see, for me, analogy. I I would think that at the moment we enter the world of the author, the author is revealed to be occupying an even farther. Or even a higher level of, or or more basic level of reality. So he's an even higher dimension of reality mm -hmm. than that. To remain ever God and the author, which is probably another reason I don't really like. Well, no, no. I mean, the authorial analogy itself is not incompatible with that. I think that we do sort of level up. I think that the idea of sort of entering the world of the author is probably a good way to convey like the absolutely level upping nature of that level up leveling up um i would think god himself at that point sort of uh, retreats to or is revealed to have always been at 
you know, some like more ultimate perch or vantage. Yeah. That's fun. I like the pop-up book analogy. You used to be just the words on a paper and now you're you're the image. A face and yeah. It's good. Yeah, this is interesting. Why don't you hit play on that presentation? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot all about this guy over here. It's repeated thrice in Romans 1. And it's taken from Psalm 106 in the Septuagint, where it says, He gave them into the hand of the nations. When people turn from God, God turns from them in the sense of allowing them to experience the consequences of their actions. As Karl Barth said, quote, The forgetting of the true God is already itself the breaking loose of his wrath against those who forget him. The enterprise of setting up the no God is avenged by success. Our conduct becomes governed precisely by what we desire. So if do you want to go off into the far country, do you want to eat pig slop? Is that what you want, O prodigal? You'll regret it. You'll come to your senses one day, and when you do, the Father's door will be opened onto you, where the Father himself stands, ready and waiting to welcome you home. God's righteousness. So righteousness as a whole can be construed and this is a bit simplistic, as the right order of things or the way things ought to be. For Paul, the gospel is all about justice, as the gospel itself acts as a manifestation of God's justice. What's more, throughout Scripture, God's righteousness is always salvific, bringing deliverance from the oppression, uh, from oppression and evil by liberating and restoring. Its primary concern is doing what is absolutely necessary to set things right, and not merely to repay each individual as he deserves. Thus, God's righteousness functions more so in restorative terms than retributive. For, quote, covenant justice is satisfied by the restoration of shalom, not by the pain of punishment, even if the infliction of pain might be entailed in the process. As Abraham J. Heskel said, God's righteousness is, quote, a power that will strike and change, heal and restore, like a mighty stream bringing life to the parched land. Justice is more than an idea or a norm. Justice is charged with the omnipotence of God. What ought to be, shall be. To misunderstand this is to misunderstand the gospel, for the gospel has everything to do with justice, and the justice that is revealed is primarily concerned with upholding shalom and bringing restoration. Thus, those who want to argue for a retributive understanding of God's righteousness face the awkward task of dismissing such clear restorative implications in favor of a far less coherent and less biblically comprehensive model of justice. As retractors of penal atonement theologies have all too often pointed out, the retributive model ultimately fails because punishment in and of itself cannot satisfy the demands of justice. Oh, no. George MacDonald says punishment or deserved suffering is no acquipose to sin. It is no use laying it on the other scale. It will not move it a hair's breadth. Suffering weighs nothing at all against sin. This is a harsh example, and I only use this because I have experienced this in my own life with certain individuals that I love dearly. Uh, let's take an instance of rape. Which of the following two responses sets things right? In the first instance, a man rapes a girl and is sentenced to 10 years of imprisonment. He then proceeds to walk scot-free. Pray tell what was set right. On the other hand, imagine the same situation, albeit this time, the man is sentenced to rehabilitation, who experiences the gravitas of his sin and is led by his guilt to repentance and a relationship with the Lord Jesus. 
He desperately longs to receive the forgiveness of the woman he has wronged. And likewise, the woman feels that her self-worth has been tainted and can only be restored by the one who ripped it from her. The two individuals meet face to face and in tears and embrace, the one forgives and the other is forgiven. Tell me which response sets things right. You know, a huge testimony for the Jewish people, and it's fairly well known. That it should be evident that divine justice is not content with mere punishment. Rather, while punishment may play an integral part, it is by no means the end goal. For true divine justice is only satisfied through healing and restoration. Thomas Talbot says, perfect justice requires reconciliation and restoration. It requires first that sinners repent of their sin and turn away from everything that would separate them from others. It requires second that God forgive repentant sinners and they forgive each other. And it requires third that God overcome, perhaps with their own cooperation, any harm that sinners do either to others or to themselves. As Norman Cross has explained, quote, the power and right to punish evil cannot vindicate God's goodness. Vengeance and everlasting retribution do not undo or redress the wrong that has been done. Retribution is no substitute for restitution. So some of you might be wondering, what are some passages on the nature of God's punishments? Well, here are some on the screen. I'm not going to be able to read them all, but you should be seeing that this is abundant. This is only some of them. I'll read uh, a few. Um, Psalm 119:71. quote, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 89, 31 through 33, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithful witness. Isaiah 26, 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. No. Sorry. What do we, when we were talking about sort of the Calvinist problem of God's omniscience, sometimes a way that they'll solve that problem is by saying that God intentionally uh, uh, ignored some things that he could very well have had access to uh, certain information or knowledge. Have you heard this? I wonder, you know, if God knows everything all at once, uh, if God participates with all information at once. The reason that I started wondering it was uh, because you sometimes get these in who knows what's caught up in the particular language of of saying it this way but that uh don't you get some things like he he will forget their sins and things of this nature um you get that language and then maybe this Maybe this is relevant to your point. Maybe it's not, but you also have God repenting um, of certain things um, when God, you know, uh, in Genesis, God saw that you know man was evil continually, and he says I should not have made them. Yeah, something like that. And then after after he floods the earth, I think doesn't he also kind of repent? Um, 
because you have the idea of God's fury going on, and then he then he repents and kind of turns it back. So I mean, at least that's an image that you frequently have. Um, I'm not familiar enough with that. It's, it, it hits me weird. Obviously, I don't think. Well, I think I think most people would interpret it as a metaphor. It's all okay. When that may be the case of the forgetting the sins kind of thing. Like, obviously, he literally Indeed. remembers them. But so I don't know. But I it occurred to me that the worst outcome, the worst conceivable outcome, would be. Uh, does if 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 damnation exists, the worst form of it would be that they were forgotten by God and forgotten by all who are in God. Um, and so that would just be, I mean, it's kind of like annihilationism, except that they still exist and are just forgotten by all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, it would it would do some seem to do some violence to the common sense definition of God being all knowing, but I think you already admitted that that it's just not it wouldn't be all knowing yeah. in the usual sense anymore. Um, oh, although of course there are some people who want that more than anything. Um, and that if God were to grant that to them, he would be, how to put it, you know, sometimes in annihilationism, it's like you have this, you, you wonder whether, you know, someone commits suicide because they want not to exist. And God, in his just wrath against that sin, punishes it by bringing them back to life to, t- uh, to annihilate them and give them not only what they ultimately wanted, but what they already had prior to his resurrecting them so it's like the thing is god's god's punishment is just meaning it's like an operation that that um that sets things right and um if um if someone were to want not to exist it's like we don't know that god is doing justice to them if his punishment for them is like that they should cease to exist and be totally forgotten. Unless that's not even what Mitch is talking about. If Mitch is talking about they're continuing to exist, but God forgets about that. Yeah, that's the that's the hell. That's, that's like the worst an, an, that's much. definitely hell. Yeah, the annihilation is a mercy at that point, if that's the alternative, because that's uh if God has forgotten you, and you could say God on any level, that's continually being forced to exist in a place of absolute nihilism. And you can't escape it. Absolute meaninglessness, and you're stuck, and there's nothing you can do ever. Because as soon as something, I, because if something has meaning, then it all of a sudden, then it then brings the fire, right? Because then it kind of suggests a telos, it suggests a judgment, it suggests some sort of order, which would want to like, it's some sort of conviction would eventually happen if you actually pursued it. But if you're if if, if everything, God, everything has just forgotten you. You're just in blackness and darkness forever, type thing, and just. I want to. I want to speak to that. Yeah. Because um, what Mitch is describing, a condition of being eternally forgotten by God, he he doesn't hear you, he won't ever turn to you, is something that is described in some people's uh, near death experiences of hell. Um, and um, for me at least, that is a challenge of sorts. I want to be able to answer that. That is some people's experience of the afterlife is that hell is a place where even God 
does not respond to prayer he will never turn to you even because you know some people's conception of the afterlife is like c.s lewis where the gates of hell are locked from the inside they never call on god you know um but then the there's the other possible conception of hell that some people seem to have actually claimed to experience when they died and so to me um one possible answer here is to say that um sin is of such a nature that it disintegrates yourself and your psyche that is it divides you against yourself and it cuts you off from knowing who you truly are um and you will you will you will repent for sin and think it's genuine but it won't actually be genuine so that um but you you believe that it is but god knows hypothetically in such a case that even though you say you're sorry, if he were to set you free, you would straight away go and give you the freedom like what you had on earth. You would straight, straight away go and just resume injuring your soul in the way that you were accustomed to before, even though you don't realize that. So it's almost a mercy uh, uh, whereby God does not respond to those pleas. Because, but it, because the nature of sin itself is it causes you to cease to know yourself. It cuts you off from who you truly are. It cuts you off from the truth. Um, you can think one thing about yourself, and um, the you know that's the, the the truth is actually the opposite. That's very much in the the Lilith quotation that you shared with me, Jason, and that I read on a previous video. If you think about this too long, it is over for you. You think about what? There's no way out of that the uh, that view of reality wait wait say that one more time i missed it the the, the the severance from your own identity from your own ability to to know what's real or to yeah there's a thing though that about yourself yeah because we're mistaken about ourselves all the time yeah what you're talking about cal i think is a little bit different though because what we're there's there's this book I read once uh, uh, called 23 Minutes in Hell. And I don't know what people saw. I know. It. I, yeah, yeah. I know. But the, the one thing that really stood out to me is what this guy said is he had, he had no awareness. Like it was like he was forgotten by God, but he had also forgotten God. Like he didn't even know to cry out to repent. He had like no, it was like there was no, he didn't know there there was no concept I can, of God I can anymore. I strongly that. relate to that. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to say about that? It... When I had COVID, um, I, I, it's like it was weird. I just reverted to atheist mode. It was just exactly like, like the idea of praying out, to, of praying to God. Just it meant absolutely nothing to me. Like, why would I even think to do that? It totally scared me when that happened to me. Um, it was frightening. Sort of, I don't know, in some weird way, it was frightening as it happened, but also not frightening, which, you know, depersonalization is something I once experienced where it's like, you're afraid, how to put it, you're not afraid, and that fact is, is terrifying to you, but at the same time, you don't feel fear, and it totally doesn't make sense, but you see that, that's why it's, it's exactly talking about being cut off from the truth of yourself, and also the weird dialectical impossible nature of that death and life. Um, which it may be even appropriate to read it again if we could dig it up. Um, but uh, 
what yeah. might be what would be appropriate to read the lilith quotation oh, let me you, go looking for them i can I, I can grab it real quick i got the book inside you want i bet you i find it faster by all right you probably can. all right do it, do it. No, no. It's a race. It's a race. I know what chapter it is. I found it. I got it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, She was in, in the outer darkness. We present with her who was in it. We were not in the outer darkness. Had we been, we could not have been with her. We should have been timelessly, spacelessly, absolutely apart the darkness knows neither the light nor itself only the light knows itself and the darkness also none but god hates evil and understands it it was not merely that life had ceased in her but that she was consciously a dead thing you just like think about that how can you experience your own non-existence um she had killed her life and was dead and knew it she must death it forever and ever she had tried her hardest to make to unmake herself and could not. And she wants to unmake herself so that she doesn't have to experience the fact of her non-existence. She wants to escape her experience of non-existence by not existing. So I, that's why I'm saying that it's this very tricky thing. Just like the present moment is a tricky thing. If you try to measure how long the present is, you can you can only measure it as what it is not, namely the past. Like when is now? Now is the next now. All too late. You know, like that thing. Um, uh, so I am drawing an analogy uh, between between the present moment, which is really, it's actually I would say it, this is going to sound very strange, but I would say that actually is eternity, and um, the eternal nature of of the the death in life that one experiences as spiritual death, which is worse than physical death. You know, that's what Hitler tried to escape. Uh, you know, he tried to escape the, the the ultimate negation of his identity that would have been entailed by like being held to trial and, and so on by his enemies. He tried to escape that negation of his identity by just negating his physical identity. It's like it's knowing that this is more to his being than just his physical identity. Um, but see, this is a this is a very, very deep, profound negation of one's identity. That's the spiritual death. Uh, she had tried her hardest to unmake herself and could not. She was a dead life. She could not cease. She must be. In her face, I saw and read beyond its misery, saw in its dismay that the dismay behind it was more than I could manifest. It sent out a livid gloom. The light that was in her was darkness, and after its kind, it shone. That's heavy stuff, man. Yeah, you know, this, sorry, go ahead. Well, you can go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say this chapter on the, is one of the most, I mean, this entire book is probably one of the most profound books I think I've ever read theologically. And you don't even realize it because you're just reading a story. But the way he explores with these ideas, like even especially in this chapter is just, uh, um, it's uh, unlike anything I've ever read before. 
and he doesn't explain it like he doesn't go into all these little particulars he just let, lets it be he just tells it in story form because he's just letting this it's almost like it, i feel like he's almost discovering it as he's writing it like he's got these characters and he's like like we talked about just letting it play out and writing it and let, seeing how these things could actually happen and you're like dang it just she had killed their life and was dead and knew it. She must death it forever and ever. So what this is, see, death is a negation of your identity. And so she still exists to witness the negation of her identity, which means that on some level, the false identity that is being negated is not the limit or the, the sum or the, the apogee of her identity. Her true identity is deeper. But I would also submit that what the nature of one's true identity is that it's like sort of dialectically emergent. It's like on the cutting edge of some uh, uh, dynamic process like the present moment is. And it's just kind of always sort of whatever. You can't, you can't know it, but you can be it. If you could name it, that wouldn't be it. Yeah. You, you can measure you can measure the present. You can't, you would only be able to measure it as what it wasn't, namely the past. Um, and um, so it's it's like this. And so that's why I would say that only the only a false identity can be negated uh, because she keeps existing to, to see the negation of her false identity. But sin is a confusion where you take, you mistake your false identity for the truth it's maybe it's uh even worse would be was not the destruction of your perception uh but the destruction of your will to change anything that you're perceiving and so what you're witnessing being dismantled is it is your identity it's the part of you that wills uh, it's your true identity it's the part of you that wills but uh Me, like a one's identity is like a, a value it's also sort of in a weird way it's also like the same as your highest good your your highest good is your identity part of it man this is weird, that's weird. well see that's the thing it's like the nature of your identity is infinite such that however however infinite or exhaustive you take your highest good to be it still does not exhaust your identity yeah, I mean it's it, it's is it uh, it's 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 strangely comforting, like there's this weird at uh, least potentially infinite is what I would say to Mitch. Comforting, but it's it's also infinite in the sense that trying to limit it and define it exhaustively is like writing on water. But as this... soon as you pronounce the judgment, it is seen to be incomplete no that's all i didn't mean to cut you off no I, no i'm just not sure what i'm thinking right now <laughs> not i don't know you did you didn't cut me off i just uh yeah i'm not sure there's something incredibly uh i don't know how to describe it it's just like something incredibly deep um and it's almost like terrifying and comforting at the same time 
the things you're talking about, I think, uh, that are um, like he'll destroy both body and soul in hell, but there's something left. It's like there's right. yeah, there's there's a because your soul, if I if I if I categorize soul as my identity, my mind, my will, my emotions, everything I perceive, it's like it kind of I think is related to what I was talking about with the figs. It's like there's it's like the, your body will be crushed, your mind will be crushed, but there's something still there and it's the real you. And that's somehow like terrifying, but uh, extremely comforting at the same time because it's, well, it's like- It's terrifying or comforting depending on what the, the still use fate is. But the spirit will return to God who gave it, I guess. Would that be the comforting thing? Is sure. that that your body and soul could be burned up but there's still something that belongs to God. And I think that's what it's kind of saying in Lilith. It's like you uh, give, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not saying that. I don't know. Maybe that's the part where I'm thinking that's comforting. And maybe that's a, a an arrogant assumption on my part. But. Um, well, I would say that, you know, when you're, when you're undergoing a trial, um, especially like a trial by God, um you you know you're tempted to tell god he's like i know that this is for my own good that you're you know you're purging the sin in me let's say but if you purge this this sin in me and and all my my desires there won't be anything of me left because i mistake i mistake myself for some false identity but god knows that if he were to purge it all away something would remain so that's that's yeah. that's so that's really what the Lilith quotations are about. Yeah, I mean, because even a baby is not a; they don't have a name necessarily. Like, not even until the eighth day do you give it a name. Like, it's just a being. It's just like there's there's something like, you know, it it has not even necessarily a conception of itself, and it's just learning you. It's not; it doesn't even really know you, but it's still like. It's like, what is that? There's still something there. It's still a breathing. It's still life. And it's like it's most infancy, most beginning stages. It's like there's still something there. Like that baby has no, doesn't know how to perceive or conceptualize anything. It has no soul necessarily. I guess she could say it has a body, but it's like it's still. So it's like even if, even if I was shrunk back, God took away my whole life and shrunk it back to that very infancy form. It's like there's still a thing there, and I, I'm when, I'm saying when, this in bodily David, terms. David loses his child, his baby, as like the baby he had with Bathsheba. Yeah, part of the judgment of God. Isn't the word that they use like of the baby? They call it a golem. Oh, I don't so know. It's like almost like a like a clay figure, like a blank slate, like not really human. So of course, this is the part where the um the 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 pro-choice people are going to jump in and you know find some kind of biblical basis like it doesn't have a soul or something and in a sense it does not have a soul because it doesn't have that kind of rich inner life and psyche and personality like you and i do the reason why i think that that to be absolutely against abortion at every stage beginning from conception the reason that i i kind of do i i based on the nature and character of god where God himself does not ever look at any potential life and say, you know what, this one better not create it. Calvinists might say different. But for me, the conception of God that makes the most sense is that God loves 
God loves all creatures, but also every conceivable creature. The idea of life unworthy of life, that Nazi slogan, does not compute to God. That's why. Um, that's why. Uh, um, because because when you say like, well, this but this life, which is a life now, but it may someday flower into a into a fully human or mature life. It's actually better that it should not be. This is a profoundly um, anti-God, anti-existence kind of attitude, which I don't think God holds. If God himself were such that he said of some life, yeah, you know what, better not create it. Better that this should not be. Then I think we would have a different God. I know that um, Jesus is said to have said of Judas, that, or of the son of perdition, more strictly, that it would be better for that man had he not been born. Um, I think when I see that, I think the mistake that we make with that with that verse is to say that um, he's, because we look at it from our perspective, which is in the future after Jesus has died, and to say, well, he's describing the present state of Judas. It's so bad that it would be better if he had never been, because we're looking at it from our perspective. But in terms of if that was something he actually said that was observed, say, at the Last Supper, then he said that before Judas did what he did. Mm -hmm. And um, so the way I see it, he was warning Judas huh. by saying that. Because he didn't yeah. say, you know, and, and as, for, as for our friend Judas here, it would be better if he had never been bored. <laughs> it's not that way. He says, he says and, and you know this, this figure, this religious figure that we all know about, the, the son of perdition? It would be better for that one if he had not been born. Hint, hint, Judas. Like, well, don't, don't do this. It's a. Here's but how. But he also says, "What you must do, do it quickly." In other words, saying if you're going to do it, then do it, do it quickly. Is how I would see it. But yeah, um, I might see it a little differently. Um, I think is what this is what always comes to my mind whenever I hear that verse is Ecclesiastes six, and it says. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. Um, so he's saying that if Judas was born, it was a stillbirth, he wouldn't, um, he would have more rest because he's, he's, he's going to be it's better for some creatures that they not exist. That, uh, that they to don't. To the extent that that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, because if and, you're and, born and, into a life. Like someone, of... someone took it literally, like, and they asked, like, um, was it Frank Turek or somebody who said, said, uh, better for that man had he not been born. What does that mean? The universe that God created is good. Um, like, as in for most people or for people in general, maybe, or at least for some people, God's favorite people. But there are some people in God's good universe of whom we must say that the best universe for them would have been the one in which they had not been born, but God didn't create it, which is the ultimate final, almost demonic evil of of. of taking that statement too far because it's like god himself is saying of some creature it would be better that you had not existed whereas 
that is God's call. But he doesn't creatures. He doesn't to, say existed though, does he? He says not been born. Been born. So some would is that the same thing? Say, well, they could have existed without oh, okay. being born, but to yeah, me, yeah. it's like it's what he's saying is like, I see. It better that he had not existed. And um, uh, and um, so. Sorry, I didn't mean to knock you off of that. Well, I mean, I, it's I'm, it's because uh, sorry, in Job, no. it's a little different. It does goes even further. It says, like, if he had died in his in the womb, or maybe I'm totally butchering it. Uh, I shouldn't have brought it up, but well, I think Jer- Jeremiah says the same thing, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you should. No. Well, I I guess. See, I guess the thing is, Ecclesiastes, is that always speaking from God's point of view? I think there are some pretty impious sentiments that are expressed in that book sometimes, which is to say I that read it's without it to value. Be, I mean, I read it to be, but I, that's just me. But uh, but the thing is, if it were the be- if it would be better, better that some had not been created, then it's like the devil's whole case and accusation against God ultimately holds up. You know, that's just like the brothers Karamazov where um uh Ivan who's an anti-theist who believes in God but thinks that God is evil and should not be worshipped um says you know he pulls this story from the tabloids of a baby girl who was tortured to death by her own parents and said hey if you could if you could be all powerful and build whatever future that you wanted for humanity but all you had to do was 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 either either do this or allow this whichever you, you please would you do that and Alyosha says, no. And so the devil can hear say, look, God, it would be better if that, that one had not been born. Yeah. Um, and well, well, and, and, and um, so, and th- this is, this is the question, because of course, many things like this have happened. And some can answer the question by saying, yeah, you know what, that one, like Mark Driscoll, he said, God created some of you to be matchsticks says it just like that. He's not actually a Calvinist anymore. But when he was in his Calvinist arc, he said, you know, God created some of you to be matchsticks. And he said it like with that, that, that attitude, like the like perfect self-righteous assurance of what he said. And that's, you know, I guess on some level that diffuses the objection or, or, or it obviates it or negates it. But most fundamentally, does that even begin to answer it? Just makes God evil. I mean, that's how it looks. Yeah, this is really interesting. Oh, well, yeah, I'm going to split. Well, because you could. All right. So see you, Mitch. Thanks for thanks for coming in. Um, see you guys. Well, I was just thinking, you know, it's. God, yeah, that's tough. I don't know. Better for him that he not been born. Because, I mean, even with Judas, you could say, well, it might have been better for him if he hadn't been born, but it wouldn't be better for us because someone had to do it. So it's better for me that he was born. Is that a better route to go? <laughs> I, I, I think that that's the that's the interpretation some will take. Is it? I think any such inter- interpretation ultimately leaves God less than God. Less than okay, huh? Yeah, I didn't even mean to go down to that because you had the whole reason this came up. The whole weird Judas thing was what the um going off the Lilith passage of a. And David, that was the thing you said with David, where that's what we're getting at. The, 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 that something is still there. Um, 
like almost like beyond the body, beyond the soul type thing, beyond the the false identity that they there's still this thing there. Because David says that when when his son dies, he says, um, like you were saying, the word for him is like this, like what this golem, this creature that has no soul. But then David even says after he dies, they ask David why why is it that now, which is interesting. I think he dies on the seventh day, right? So it's right before he reaches the eighth day where he gets his name, where the child would have got a name. It doesn't even get there, I think. And then it dies and they're like, and David just gets up and goes and eats food, washes his face. And they're like, you know, you fasted and mourned for seven days. Why, why are you okay now? Like why? And he says, um, let me read it. He says this statement that's like just extremely comforting at the same time. Um, where is that part? It's in second Samuel. Oh yeah. Let's see. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? And then he says this, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So it's like, he's still going to his child. Like, even if this this golem that has no soul or whatever, it's like, but he's still going to be reunited it, with it. But this is what annihilation is believe they 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 entertain the idea that for example that golem doesn't how to put it they don't actually say this because i think a lot of them think that you know like aborted uh even like zygotes with the morning after they'll uh, um like so for a lot of annihilations i think they would say like for a zygote that was aborted by means of the morning after pill god actually takes that zygote and allows it to flourish into uh the person it was destined to be you know, despite their, despite what they did. So a lot of annihilationists would say that, maybe not all, but it's like in being annihilationist, it's it's like you're entertaining the, the idea that, you know, God, God in denying life to that, that, that zygote or golem, he just leaves it there. He just lets it enter the, the refuse pile of failed or aborted creations, things that were started that, that did not like, uh, flower into maturity so in some sense he is a god of false starts he is a god of abortive processes on annihilationism wait so how um, does that tie how does that connect to annihilationism because they believe that some souls do finally end the destruction and do not flower into what god either purposed them to become okay um, or what he never purposed them to become, you might say, so that they begin and they, they're truncated and that somehow is to the glory of God rather than a thing which he never commanded. And so that raises the question, for example, so what I'm saying is like, it should be clear at this point that I'm not taking a literal interpretation of what happened to David. I'm not saying that it was the positive will of God. I'm saying that it was at most the permissive will, what he allowed. But I think personally, I suspect that in many places where the Old Testament says God does this, it's actually that God allows it. Um, and and uh, so that's what you would call maybe the right and the left hand of God. But I think that the Old Testament, and it's sort of an idea that begins to be transcended in Job. It sort of begins with the idea that if you suffer, it's your fault. And, you know, you did something against God and the suffering is God's punishment against it. Because they really had this idea that, you know, but they, they eventually lost it. It's like, um, 
um, won't the good prosper and the wicked be uh, hoist by their own petard? Uh, they'll be undone by their own evil works, right? And, um, uh, you know, that obviously turns out to not be true. And that kind of what takes it into Second Temple Judaism and Apocalypticism and all that, where the, the judgment is going to, it's not going to be in this life. It can't be. Because if this life were all there was, that sort of seems to be the impression in the Old Testament or earlier in the Old Testament, then justice isn't served. Um, so that's why I, you know, well, I don't even know if I actually offered like reasons why, but like to me, that's that's the left hand of God. It's the permissive will. And anyway, when you when you're when you're not upright and blameless before God, so that you can walk in His ways and live long in the land which He has given you, um, things have a way of falling apart. It is, in some sense, the consequence of what you did or didn't do. But that doesn't mean I don't think that God himself does it. I think that's what happens. In other words, I think, again, it's another way of saying this is the intrinsic consequence of sin. Because to say that it's, it's only because God is punishing you, is it's almost as if to say, you know, sin, it's wrong, but only because God punishes you for it. If he didn't, it would be great fun. So if it's, you know, you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. I see how they're both kind of the, saying the same thing. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, because the, the intrinsic consequence of sin is uh, it's like missing the mark in a way. Like it, you miss the mark, and then this this is what sort of. I mean, I see. Well, I see what you're, I see what you're saying. Yeah. What I was going to say earlier, and this is probably the last thing I'll say, maybe before we wrap it up, unless there's something you want to add, um, is that. The reason why sin is intrinsically wrong is that your true identity is love. Mm -hmm. Love love is your true identity. Love is your true name. Um, and that's why you find your, your highest freedom and fulfillment in sort of owning or inhabiting your true identity and your true self. Um, uh, you know, Scrooge is liberated by his experience with the ghosts because on some level deep down in his more, more integrated self his true self he already was one with those whom he consciously discovered his love for later on a deeper level he already did love them in such a way that he's convicted by his own conscience that's what the ghosts do they show him by your own core values you you're convicted out of your own mouth um um and so, so you're in the image of God. God is love, which means on some level, it's like in your true essence, your true identity, you are also love. But sin is unlove. Sin negates, if it were possible, um, your, your, your true identity. But maybe I haven't fully thought this through. It doesn't actually negate your true identity. Your false self is in turn negated uh, you know, or is instead negated um, by experiencing the intrinsic consequences of, of, of sin. You know, at the very least, this is my belief. I don't know that I've done much to establish it. But this is how I conceptualize things. Probably I need to think about it more. These are big concepts. I definitely need to think about it more. Like, man. Yeah, well, it's not so easy to think about, is it? No. 
it's a little bit like math with words because <laughs> yeah. what it means is to say that you have to chop things up very fine mm -hmm. the mind's tendency is to move away um but but um yeah what this requires is returning to the same questions again and again and making very fine distinctions and well, I don't know that I actually am such a great man for distinctions, but in some way, I'm reasoning closely in a way that most people are not accustomed to and that I myself am not that accustomed to. I have to keep training myself in, the, in this discipline. Yeah. Well, you're doing a good job, man. You're doing great. Thanks, frog dog. <laughs> Clown yeah, dog. We can wrap it up here if you want. That's, that's it. I think that's I think that's a good a good place to end it, a good note to end on too. Um, yeah, I was trying to see if there was anything else in this little passage that would be a good quote to end it on, but uh, I don't know. Do you think that we were? Do you think Mitch? You, you think Mitch is Mitch is cool after this conversation, right? Like we didn't say anything that was like. Yeah, yeah. Or, oh no, no, we're we're good. Yeah, yeah. You should. I mean, Mitch is Mitch is cool after a much more heated conversation than this, right? Yeah, yeah, you should. I was getting ready to say you should hear me and him on the phone sometimes. There's a, a I could send you this picture. We actually at Craig's wedding. There's a picture of us where we're yelling at each other over the Trinity. Somehow we're it's Craig's getting married and me and him are sitting there and Mitch is like doing this in my face and and then uh I can't remember what happened. I think we like I was trying to use an example with the flowers and I moved the flowers and we didn't even notice they were sitting over the candles and his wife came over and was like, guys, the flower is on fire. So we're like sitting there arguing the flowers go up in flames. So like that, that's, that's a good uh, symbol. Good, some good imagery of me and Mitch's conversation sometimes. So I no, he, yeah, he's yeah. cool. You can set the flowers on fire and he'll still be good. That's yeah. a great, it's a great description. Yeah. What yeah. should the episode be called? Oh, that's I a tough know. question. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. You're better at coming up with those than I am. I'll, I usually just put titles. I just put names and dates. Yeah, we. Can, I'll ask Mitch too, or maybe Luke. Maybe Luke can do it. We should just oh, title it after Luke's this, Luke's this little sleepiest intro. conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. ASMR with with almond tree. Um, well, I I don't know if it was that sleepy, but um, I started to wake up. I think there was a part where I was I was because of the diet dude. Yeah, that was it. But that the question it. is, should you be drinking Diet Dew? Does <laughs> Diet Dew contain harmful additives? It's gonna, it's gonna send me to hell, right? I got these, all these laws and, and rules. Did you ever see the 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 Simpsons episode that was um Homer goes into the ancient, into the shop of curiosities, antiques, and antiques, and there's like this kind of, a vaguely Asian looking guy at, at the at the counter, sort of like in um, uh, Gremlins. Did you ever see that? No. Where there's like, they go into like a curiosity shop and there's like a, a really just like probably, you know, racist and like overdone, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, like Asian, you know, outfit and, you know, the guys yeah. there and it's like ancient Chinese secret kind of, <laughs> kind of idea. And so Homer goes into a shop like that and he sees the monkey with um, uh, the, the symbols. Okay. Yeah. And and he's like, oh, this looks this looks great. I wonder why those cursed items are always monkeys, like the monkey's paw. I don't know if you ever read that story, but it's a fantastic story. You should you should read that story. The monkey's sometime. paw, curse of the monkey's paw. 
Yeah, so those are the the newest Wonder Woman movie was about that whole idea. I thought the idea oh, was really? fascinating. The, the movie was bad, but the idea was fascinating. It's like what the idea is where you take something, but it takes something from you, right? And you don't notice it. Yeah, something yeah. Like so Homer. Oh no. Okay. Yeah, no. It's like you you get the curse of getting exactly what you wish for, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and um uh, the um, which is. Yeah, it was in a weird way ties back to God, you know, like saving us from ourselves and not answering our prayers when he knows that they'll actually be bad for us kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but us interpreting that as the abandonment in some cases. But um, yeah, um, the Homer. Um, Homer in that. Yeah, so he, this is the monkey with the symbols and he's like, well, this looks great. How, how much is it? And it's like, it's only like Five ninety nine or something. It's like oh, that. That's good, but the the monkey is cursed. To the shopkeeper says, um, and I said that's bad. But uh, <laughs> th- but it comes with a free Froger. He has like a frozen yogurt machine. It turns <laughs> out next time. It's like that's good, but the the uh, uh, the Froger is also cursed. It's like oh, that's bad. Homer says that's good. That's bad after everything he says, and. Um, <laughs> the program is also cursed. That's bad. And you say, but it comes with a free choice of topping. That 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 that's good. And that's then the shopkeeper says, the shopkeeper says, but the the toppings contain potassium benzoate. And Homer is just, Homer is just like, uh, staring blankly. And the shopkeeper has to go. That's bad. <laughs> that's that's so. Check the ingredients list on your diet, dude. <laughs> does that have that in there? Oh, no. Yeah, it does. What does it have? Sodium benzoate. It has sodium benzoate? It does. Isn't oh. that what you just said? Exactly what you just said? I said potassium benzoate. Oh, potassium. But, um, oh, wait. But, potassium Well, citrate. not that I know the difference. Lutein, no, it does, have, it does have potassium benzoate. It has that as well. It's got Does all it the have ben- aspartame? It's got all the benzoates in it. Of course, yeah, of course. I don't want it not aspartame? sweetened. Yeah, I need it sweetened. That's what, what I was going to say. The aspartame is like, aspartame is the not good. You should just drink regular dew, man. What are you worried you're going to put on weight? Yeah, I guess I could drink normal dew. They, sometimes they make them with stevia now too, I think. Well, I, I switched to diet a long time ago because I used to drink a lot. And I was drinking a lot of rum and cokes. And I was like, I should at least drink rum and diet cokes. And then, so I, then I got used to the diet taste and then I stuck with it and I actually like it better for the fact that it's not sticky and it doesn't attract flies. One time I went and I took a, I had a normal do and I went and just took a it big doesn't, swig. Doesn't that, say, like, that, that should be like a bad, oh, bad yeah. omen. Well, hey, I don't want to live forever. Like even the fly, like <laughs> this is what my dad used to say about, like we would point to a cereal at the store, like we wanted to eat, like we wanted him to get us this cereal. Yeah. And he would say, Oh yeah, even the rats don't touch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even the pests avoid the diet too. Yeah. So it's it's obviously bad. But I don't want to live forever, man. It's all right. <laughs> We're here for a good time, not for a long time. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'll catch you later. All right, see you, man. I'll send, send me the audio. Definitely. All right away. All right. Okay. Have a good day. Have a great day. Love you, man. Love you too. <laughs>